September 6, 2019, coming to you from the Blackmore Ranch in Marietta, California. Welcome to the Whiskey Throttle Show. I'm your host, David Pingree, and with me as always, Grant Langston and uh, our producer, Donnie Bales. And uh, we we're in- welcoming a very interesting guest today, uh, somebody be- we've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while, Marty Tripes, the youngest rider still to ever have won uh, an AMA Supercross or Motocross event. It's a record that still stands, probably will never be bre- beaten. Uh, so we're going to have him on today and go through his career, <clears throat> and it was a very, very interesting career, so uh, excited to get to that. Um, he is brought to you today by PowerDot, and if you haven't been to PowerDot.com, get over there and check out their uh, single or duo units. Uh, electronic muscle stimulation is, is a, a technique that goes back for years. It's scientifically proven. They just perfected it. So get on there and check them out. You get 20% off typing in Whiskey Throttle at checkout. Uh, also want to thank Yamaha Motor Corporation. Uh, Stoked on their support. Those guys have been amazing. Method Race Wheels, they're bringing you our front-end chatter segment. Decal Works, bringing you our last call. Uh, Four-wheel parts, our get-at-me Q&A. You can send questions in to GL and I, and we will answer them for you. Uh, Troy Lee Designs, uh, they're going to bring you our timeout today, our break mid-show, and we appreciate all their support. Adidas, Pro Circuit, Dunlop Tires, and Hilo Concepts. You can get 20% off over there on all their products. Type it in Whiskey Throttle at checkout. And also Fire Department Coffee. Go over... Same thing, firedeptcoffee.com. Type in Whiskey Throttle at checkout, get 20% off. They also give 10% of their net proceeds to injured firefighters. So um, get over there and help, help that out. Great cause. Uh, specialized Bicycles, big thank you to them as well as RacerX. Uh, get over and get a 99-cent subscription to RacerX online and print for, for 99 cents for three months. Smoking deal. Can't beat it. So um, let's jump into the show. Method Race Wheels front-end chatter. The first thing we want to talk about... Um, well, Method bringing you the strongest, fastest, lightest wheels in off-road racing. Any UTVs you have, Jeeps, trucks, they handle it all. Um, best wheels out there. Super cool looking. Uh, and they're stronger than anything else out there as well. So if you really do get off-road, you're all set. Um, GL, two-stroke yep. popularity. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I, I kind of beat this drum a lot, but you can look around and just see at what's going on between the all-star races at all the nationals. Yep. The 125 Dream Race, which just happened up in Washougal uh, a week ago, and was packed over a thousand entries. Crazy. Um, there's a, an event up in Montana coming up called the 32 to 1 Classic uh, in <laughs> Helena. Um, these things are popping up. The main event back in Maine here. That's actually real soon, this weekend or next. Uh, yeah, I, I guess Marty Tripes has got his. Yeah, there's a, there's a, we'll, we'll talk about that. There's another two-stroke series that <coughs> uh, we're going to talk to you about on this show here. That's coming up here in Southern California. It's the first of its kind should be really neat. Why, are they, why is it coming back, in your opinion? Um, you know, we always talk about the pendulum that swings and, and things that go on in the industry. And what happened in, in what I've seen is the sport changed for a while. You know, it was going down that four-stroke road and everyone was, I think, focused on that's where we were going and that's where we were going to be. Um, and then the recession happened and people sort of fell out of the sport a little bit. I think four-strokes... Um, some people didn't have that passion for four strokes like they did the two strokes. And we all thought we were going down this four stroke road and some people were a little bit reluctant. And, um, you know, here in our Southern California bubble sometimes we think, oh, the world has changed to four strokes. But when you go around the world, it's still predominantly two strokes. And I think that hasn't really changed. And we're seeing it happening again here where people aren't getting rid of their two strokes. They're pulling them back out of the sheds. They, they, it doesn't take much to get them fixed up, rebuilt, whatever it may be. I mean, the, most people know how to rebuild a two-stroke engine. It's relatively affordable, simple. 
and you can have a lot of fun of, uh, with it. I mean, we, we rode those Yamaha two-strokes. I'm not going to lie, I really enjoyed it. And you get used to riding a four-stroke, so going back to two-stroke is a little tough at times. Um, but, you know, it's like, like riding a bike. comes back pretty yeah. easily. But I just think that people are kind of ref refining that, uh, that passion they once had. And for a lot of those people, it started out with two strokes, and now yeah. they're, they're, they're just realizing it's, it's been too long off the bike, and I think there's just something in your blood that makes you want to hey, bust I the just, mountain go. Hey, I just bought my first two-stroke in 20 years. Tony's got a KX500. Just bought it from GL. Just easing into it with no, a nice yeah, simple bike. No, yeah, I want bike. to go really small and really easy. <laughs> but I want to be there day one when you ride that. Yeah, I don't think so. No, it's going to be a private, uh, private test day by myself. <laughs> well, even like With an ambulance, but by myself. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's just in case you... Slip a slip the shift the Kickstarter try to start the thing right break yeah your blow your knee out yeah yeah so I mean even in, in like uh, I was talking to some friends in the UK they were saying vintage uh, racing entries now outnumber like all the amateur mm. and pro series and so they're keeping the sport alive and um, yeah it's cool to see I mean um, even we noticed at the dealership this last Christmas how many parents have brought their kids in to buy them whether it was a little electric bike or a Peewee 50 or a KTM 65, whatever. It was just, uh, or, or a side-by-side -side or a quad or a buggy or whatever it may be. There were a lot of parents just saying, I want my kids out of the house, off the video games, off the computers, and out and being a, a kid again. And so we saw a lot of kiddie stuff get sold and a lot of those people coming back to get new gear, boots, parts, service. So you're seeing this, I don't know. I, it's a good thing what I'm seeing, but it looks like a, a new like rejuvenation towards, you know, dirt biking. What seems to be nice is that it's across the board. It's vintage. It's yeah. relic. It's, it's everything. Kids. It's, it's new. Side by it's side. everything. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's not just pure hardcore moto. There's a lot more, I, I guess, recreational uh, riding um, from people. And so to that end, if, if you're going to go out on a weekend and just ride, okay, you, there's, there's just not, the racing has not come back. If you look back at racing in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was... Local races were packed, but now we've got tracks open every day of the week, at least here in Southern California, and I think there's more, more open riding yep. places during the week elsewhere to where guys don't have to race on the weekends, or the tracks are just open for practice, and people would rather go out, do a couple sessions, and go home, and so they don't need the best bike out there, right? They're not racing to win. They just want to have fun. Well, cost so too, right? I mean, the cost sense. is so much better and all across the board. <clears throat> it's cheaper to buy, cheaper to rebuild, cheaper to maintain. Yeah. So th that's a major factor. Well, there's, I, also, <clears throat> there's also more options nowadays, meaning I, I feel like maybe, say, in the 70s, it was motocross and that's what everyone looked at. Now, like I said, you've got the desert crowd, the, the, the dual sport crowd, uh, the touring crowd, crowd yeah. adventure. You know, there's all these segments that have opened up that stem from what was once moto, they've all sort of branched off. So there's a lot of variety out there, and I think that's keeping people's interest in... It's like anything. It'll change with the times, but the core is still there, meaning people still like to ride. Well, I was chatting with one of the manufacturers who has been adamant they're not going back to two-strokes, and he was picking my brain about, okay, what, where do you think we're at on cost on the bikes? You know, is it... Are we, have we, like, reached a point where it's just too much for people? And I said, this sport is blue-collar, man. Like... What kid can work it in and out or go mow grass or do whatever and save up enough money to buy a $10,000 bike just to get started? Well, that's what, I, that's what like my father did, but they weren't ten grand. But he worked <clears> on <throat> bikes and mowed lawns and that. And yeah, yeah, but so, you could afford what the, yeah. the cost of the bikes were, even given the, the comparative 
uh, inflation and stuff. It was they were much cheaper. nowadays. You got to sell the grass to make ten grand. <laughs> you got to sell to grass. Bike. Well, there goes my chair again. <laughs> Geo Blues chair. Uh, uh, we're gonna have to take a time out and be right back. Wait, hold on. Check this out. <laughs> Grants would have some trouble. Chair. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is this going to happen the whole show? I hope not. Jill, <laughs> like, maybe it's time to drop some LBs there. <laughs> what do you think? That's, hey, I hey. can't start a diet mid-show, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like the chair's fucked. Hey, I like where your head's at. but This is the universe giving you a heads up that it is time to make some life changes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not a vintage <laughs> chair. What do you think? Okay. Anyway, what I was saying... This is a very blue-collar sport, all right? And so by, by increasing the cost of bikes to that, you, you've basically taken the core, your, your, your bread and butter, yeah. and you've eliminated them. They can't afford it. They're like, yeah, but we, we sell when we do like the, the works editions or the, you know, the factory editions. They sell those out. All vet riders, though. Yeah, that's I, all and vets. I said, yeah, that's this little, yep. small little that's the guy group that of people are... that make a lot of money, and they'll yep. spend whatever. That's not, that's not your bread and butter. That no. isn't your base, right? So... I feel like we've alienated the, the base of this sport, and that's why you go to a local race, and it's empty. There's yep. just not a lot of local racing going on. I think part of the problem, too, was the manufacturers were trying to outdo each other and build better products, which is, which is obviously great from one aspect, but if you look at the bikes, you know, even you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the manufacturers brag that the bikes you can line up and race, and so you've got a $10,000 race machine, but some people may want a $5,000 Basic suspension, basic mode, you know, a very simple, simple bike. There's some reliable. Chinese brands out there. You've seen those Chinese brands. But then people shy no, but, away because they hear Chinese. No, but, but a lot of people are buying those because they're, they're like four grand. They're yeah. nothing. And, and they're junk. I'm not like advocating those. But yeah. there is a sect that's going to those because of the cost. Yeah. I, I pitched to this guy. I said, I know you guys won't ever build two strokes again. But if you would just go back to the last year, you made a 125. Put Cheng Shin tires on it. Put steel bars like make it put some cheap stuff on it if guys want to update it they can throw aftermarket stuff on it build it for a price point you know yeah still keep the you can use the frame off your 250f throw in the last engine that you manufactured create an entry-level bike for people who want to get into the sport and build it at a price point but don't the manufacturers are going to think well we've we've spent all this money on tooling all this other stuff and it's like we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot by having another I get it, but if you don't have a, a logical step into the sport... They're not going to go to the next one. Then yeah. they're not buying a 250F. It's just too much. Yeah. So pick your poison. You know, yeah. Is it an electric bike? Okay, if you can sell that to them for four, cool. But there needs to be a cheap option. <laughs> the electric bike's going to be more than, I know, than I know. a That's not not will edition bike. For a while. Yeah. Well, yeah. getting back to it, I, I, I think where there could be, um, I don't know, closing, bridging of the gap is... The Japanese, who are obviously a, a huge influence in our industry, I mean, they make most of the bikes, they have their way of doing business the way they look at things too. And I think with America, if there was a way to bridge a gap and say, well, this is what we want in America, you know, and a lot of times they are building things to try and suit the world's needs and things like that. But if you've got a big enough market, like say America, that a lot of countries would piggyback off anyway, you could do, instead of having... I mean, if you go look at a lot of these um, brands, their lineups, I mean, they've got, like, they've got tooling and, and machines that can make a 50, a 60, a 75, an 80, a 100, a 125, a 150, a 160. Maybe eliminate some of those models and put, just put into a simple 
cast iron simple engine with a, just a regular, you know, sort of two-stroke setup. And maybe you could even get away with some sort of fuel injection so you don't worry about carb, carburation, carburation and issues like that. Keep it simple and keep the cost down. I think a lot of the costs too go into like suspension and all the aftermarket stuff you were saying, Dave. Buy fancy bars here and clamps there. Just keep it simple. Yeah. And you KTM could have and something. Husky sell every two-stroke they have when they bring them in here. Yeah, uh, they sell them out. I know. It's and I think, too, that it's, it's also done strategically where they're not saturating the market. They're bringing in what they know they can move. Yeah. Well, you know, you speak to, like, a global, what the global community wants, but look at the British championships, the 125 and 250, the two-stroke championship over there, it's booming. Yeah. They have a 125 class, uh, kind of a step stone class into the GPs, yep. right? So yep. uh, I know Everts, when he was managing the Suzuki team, was was begging Suzuki to build a 125 again. Um, there was there well, were his sons now racing at 125 <laughs> in that series you're talking about, right? And he wanted them, you know, he wanted those young kids to have a place to start yeah. so they could groom them and bring them up through yeah. the ranks. And they they don't have that now. So I don't know. Seems like there's a need for it, but um, at least from a recreational standpoint, people are buying them and using them and having fun on them. Uh, anything else to add to that? No. Right. I think we just solved the world's problems. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about two-stroke series because there's a cool one coming out that Marty's involved with. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about, what about Marv's injury here from this last national? Have you heard anything? Because it's been pretty quiet. Yeah. Um, I, I heard just that, that he might have had a, a little injury that um, may require some surgery, but I haven't heard too much um, except for that. So Was it the same knee? Do you know? Remember from last year? I don't remember which knee. I watched the video of the crash over and over, and I was trying to see if it got tweaked or what happened. I, there wasn't anything really obvious, but when he gets up, I yep. mean, but you, you do see, see the bike when it comes over. You can see it when it hits his leg; it hits it right in the side of his knee, and I think it just, yeah, kind of. Hopefully, it's just a strain, or you know, you can strain them and tweak them, and, and not really have any major damage. Well, so hopefully, that's the case for Marv. Well, but. like I was saying, if it's an ACL, that's a big, big issue. I does mean, he, that, that pretty much runs towards twenty twenty. What's that? Does he wear knee braces? I think so. I, I think he does too. Yeah. But it's like anything. I mean, knee braces can only help so far. Well, and that's why they're not going to fix going the back problem. To no, that's point. the point. Go back to Rhino's, Rhino's point. Deal. I haven't worn knee braces since that Neither show. Neither have I. And uh, I have a way better feel for the bike. My feet are tucked in closer, so I'm not hanging them up. Like, I'm, Rhino sold me. <laughs> I know. So. I like I, it. But, he, but his point was, okay, you've worn the best knee braces you can get your whole career. How many knees have you blown out? I'm like Three. I remember I was shocked when I saw Stefan Everts wearing knee pads, just like literally knee pads. And I'm like, he goes, I've never had a knee injury. That was late into his career. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, hey, so uh, what about other injured riders? Um, we talk a lot about maybe the USA's chances at the Motocross of Nations this year being slim to none. That was kind <laughs> of the, the general consensus. You're going to this sand track that's just bottomless sand. And the Dutch riders and just guys who spend time on the GPs, you have to get good in the sand because they have those tracks over there. So we're going in at this major, major disadvantage, but I've started to notice all these injuries from key players, guys that aren't going, you know, uh, whether it's Ken Roxon or Marv or whoever. Um, a yeah, lot, a of lot of the top countries, guys aren't going. Yeah, um, it, it seems like there's not one country where you go, oh, they've got a, everyone that you could ever dream of having. Um, you know, if you look at Italy, obviously with Cairoli's injury, uh, Hurlings is coming back. Um, there's a few other riders, like you said, injured. And then even, you know, for the U.S. team, maybe it wasn't the team that people thought were going to be picked. But when you look at it, 
everyone's coming in with some sort of a story or, as I just was trying to say, is not the best possible team they have. So, you know, it could be, it could be interesting. I still, I still think the Dutch are the favorite. Um, Hurlings is getting back and, you know, the race is about another month away. So he's got some time to get bike fit again. I, Hurlings is going to win. But, I mean, his teammates. Koldenhoff. Uh, he's not he had just, a great year, though. He's, what do you mean? He's just had back-to-back GP wins. Overall, though, for the whole season, he's getting back up to form, but I would say... Yeah, but he's peaking right now. Well, and then they've got Vlaanderen, so I think... Uh, I still think the Dutch are going to be the team the to beat. favorites? Koldenhoff yeah. last year, to me, was the biggest surprise at Disney Nations. I mean, he, he rode He amazing. was a different human being yeah. that day. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if he can do that again, and uh, those guys are good in the Wouldn't sand. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I, I still think the Dutch are the favorite. I think the French team is always able to make it work on, 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 on race day. Even if they don't have what you think is the perfect team, they work very well as a team. Uh, um, got to give them credit where credit's due. That's what they've done so well, is work as a very strong team. Um, they get, you see them, they strategize, who's going to go the way and why, and yeah. They're working as a team better than anybody, for sure. Because a lot of other times when you go there, you assemble this team, but no one actually works as a team. Everyone's riding as an individual, if it makes sense, and I think sometimes that's, that's backfired on teams. But you Would they win the last two or three years in a row, France? Five, it's like five years, isn't five it? Five years. Well, they've won like, yeah, like what's it, six, seven out of the last eight years or right. something. So they've only missed it. Like They're on a roll. And they're on the podium every time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. Good luck to our boys going over. Um, Apparently you're going to need it. Well, that's yeah. the word. I, you know, I think, anything can happen. That's, but I think with the guys they got going, I think – um, Osborne's got GP experience, and I don't think the sand scares him too much. I think Anderson's pretty strong in the sand. The only guy I think that might be in a, for a, a bit of a, a wake-up call is is Justin Cooper. I don't know if he's he's excited, and you can see by his interviews he's honored to be picked for the team. But I, part of me wants to go, you just have no idea what you're getting yourself into. But maybe he surprises us all. Um, I mean, he he rode well in the heat and the sand this year, and yeah. you know so. But I still think it's going to be, like, next level for him when he gets there. Hopefully, he's, he's been really getting good starts all year here. That's been sort of one of his strong points. That really so helps at the motocross of nations, I'll tell you that much. Fingers crossed he can keep doing Especially that. Especially on the small bike. He's got the bike. That Those 250 Fs are as fast as a 450. <laughs> well, you would hope so, and he needs it because the, he's going to be lined up with 450s, both motos. Yeah. So. yeah. The Yamahas are the fastest bikes out there. Yeah, if there's any 250 that's going to get a start, it's, it's going to be the Yamaha. For sure. So, anyway. All right, well... It'll be interesting to see what happens. That's our Method Race Wheels front-end chatter segment. Uh, we appreciate those guys. Go over to Method Race Wheels and check out their full complement of wheels. Let's bring up our featured guest, Marty Tripes. He is brought to you by PowerDot. And uh, you can get over there and um, look at the single and the two units they have, which basically just allows you to do both sides. If you want to do both shoulders at the same time, you can. The single unit just goes on one place at a time, but you could do one side and then do the other. So... Um, it's just a convenience factor. So get over there and check those out. We appreciate PowerDot's support always. And here we've got the marvelous Mr. Tripes. Yeah. There you are. <laughs> Let's get this thing out here. Welcome to the show, sir. Good. Thank you, uh, David and Grant, for having me on the show. It's fantastic. Yeah. I've seen your couple of your shows, and I thought, you know, one day I'd like to get on there. And <laughs> made a call to Mr. Grant, and here we are. Well, we're excited to have you. you we, we made a list. Yeah, I was a pretty, pretty comprehensive when list. He, when he asked, I was like, yeah? You want to be? I'm like, yeah, we'll make that happen. <laughs> I thought yeah. I had to bribe you with my barbecuing. 
Oh, well, that I should have. <laughs> I, sh- I should have been a better negotiator. Thanks, Tim. Do better <laughs> next time. Uh, How you been? Well, you know, getting old is not easy for ex-motocrossers and people in general. We've had some health problems, and we're trying to get through that and get back to uh, being healthy. I've got a semi-bucket list going at 63, and one is I want to get back on the bike. Cool. All right. And I don't want to, you know, we could never do what we did, but I've got this vision where I just want to throw it and do a couple things that I used to be able to do. And Stand up power sliding through a corner with your feet on the face. vision. I know I can do that fairly easy. <laughs> That's one of them, but just to rip a little bit. Yeah. And um, it's good enough. Second is be able to ride with my friends that are still riding today. Uh, the Sandpit crew from Santee. Uh, you Sand all Pit. know who you are. And, um, boy, was that some stomping grounds for all the factories and myself. Yep. But um, the basic thing is after all this is said and done in your life, uh, the one thing you really take with you is what you've done in your life. All the monies and toys, it isn't going in the box with you. No. <laughs> so at that point, you start realizing... A bunch of different stuff and um i look forward to enjoying racing with my friends that are still riding today having a cold beer afterwards maybe burn some meat on the grill and talking yeah like the old days yeah i don't know how it goes today with the uh modern guys and all that you know all the generations it's changed so much and uh speaking of change i hear that a lot but i watch every uh national i watch all the supercrosses and i <laughs> When the newer generations come to me and say, oh, racing's changed. You could never have been as good as those guys and this. Oh, well, yeah, it's changed. The bikes have changed, this and that. But in the end, it's still racing. You still go scrub yourself in the shower the same way. You put your shoes on the same way. And racing is racing. You either have it or you don't. If you don't got it, you got to go out and earn it. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't changed. No. Yeah. I mean, the, the jump, there's bigger jumps, but the bikes are so much better that it's all relative. What you guys hauled ass around Unadilla on back in the 70s right. would terrify kids today. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's no way they'd get on those twin shock 500s and go to, the speed you were going. Trying yeah. to, trying so to it was, control being out of control. It was different, but it wasn't any easier. It wasn't any less no. gnarly. It was just a different gnarly. Well, That's the, all. The newer generation says... Oh, you guys weren't nearly as badass in shape. Uh, excuse me, 45-minute motos plus two laps? Go do that in uh, Alabama when it's 101 degrees and 100% yeah. humidity yeah. in New Orleans. And um, with that being seven and four inches, the very early days of uh, motocross, where do you think the suspension came from? It yeah, was our legs, body. our yeah. body. Yeah. And even in the 70s, a lot of it was still that. Yeah. I mean, these guys put so much trust in these modern bikes because they work so well that they've lost that point. This is too much, and we're going to, it's not going to end good. Yeah. And sometimes they get through it, and sometimes they don't. And uh, with, this other, with the newer generation, I would say also to this, and you've heard it from your parents, I know you have somewhere. Maybe the new generation has it hasn't, but you gotta walk before you run. And I thought taking kids from uh, 80 CCs and all these kids that are coming up, 
and throwing them right to the 250s. Yeah. My God. Well, it's gnarly. It's you're too just much. looking for hospital runs everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of gotten out of control. Anyway, yeah. let's yeah. go on from there. Well, yeah. When was the last <laughs> time you rode? Oh, jeez. I would have to say probably 15 years, 14 years. Okay. I test ride bikes all the time because I have a shop, but um, not actually got to go out and ride. Yeah. About 15 years. Okay. Well, we support you in that, man. Anything we can do, you let us know. We'd be, we'd be stoked oh, I appreciate to, it. <laughs> to see you out there again. That would be super fun. So tell us about where you grew up in Santee. Santee is uh, east of San Diego, and uh, El Cajon touches that borderline in Lakeside. Through all the years, probably until the last 10, it was accountable for the most off-road vehicles in the world. And you could combine all the United States together, and it wouldn't surpass that. Wow. So if you drive through East County, and sometimes later days they called it the Cajon Zone with Ricky Johnson, Ron Lachine, Rock Lover, and all these people. Yeah. Yeah. Burner. The thing was, every house had a motorhome. Every house you drove by had a sun buggy, a, a sand buggy, or motocross bikes everywhere yeah, yeah it was not uncommon for you to get on your motocross bike and ride it to high school I oh mean, yeah it was it was like the wild west let's take the horse to the bank you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. tie him up hey, cops wouldn't <laughs> they wouldn't even hassle you really yeah not too bad it was more accepted culturally i suppose to, yeah to just... here's how old i am i'm as old as dust and in fact, I fart dust, fart my French. But <laughs> I remember going to high school in uh, 72, and I looked at the, uh, it was called the U-Totem. It's like a 7-Eleven convenience store. And the gallon of gas was 29 cents. Jeez. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> well, a gallon of gas is still 29 cents. The other $4 comes from taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good, a good yeah, point. The state's taking it out of you. Um, what'd you, how'd you get into riding? Who started you? Did your dad uh, ride? Well, yeah, actually, um, we rode bicycles, and I got to where I just was jumping off of houses and <laughs> doing all the stuff that they're doing these days that are even more so. And um, the, we were camping quite a bit. We liked to go camp, and the neighbors had a CT90 Honda. Uh, I think everybody in the world has rode one of those, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? And we asked if we could take it, and the neighbor said, sure, take it. So um, it was one of those things. They sat me on the bike, and, kid, here's the throttle, and here's the rear brake, and you shift here, and you're going, okay, okay, I'm I'm, 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 I'm taking it all in, yeah. Next thing you know, they push you off. You're on your own. And it just came right away, natural. You just had it. I just had it, and... Um, the bicycling helped, you know, yeah. baby steps and move up. That was one of those deals. Yeah. So um, we progressed, and my uncle was a fanatic in uh, motocross, building bikes and hot, uh, hot rods and motors. And so we built up a um, CT90 is what I think it was. He put on dual carburations and all this stuff, and we were... <laughs> One of the places we went camping, they had a private organized race amongst like 30 friends. Okay. And um, somebody went up there and said, would you guys mind if this kid rides with you? 
And they said, well, as long as he stays out of the way, you know, and because I was a little kid and they were on Montessas and Bull Tacos, that, that type of days and years. And I went out there and rode and I did, you know, fairly okay for a kid. I, it was like a 10th or something. It was just a fun race, but right then I knew, I said, the trail riding and hill climbing and all this is over. We have to go racing. And um, the guy that really talked him into it was um, Dick Armstrong. And he told my dad, he says, you need to put that kid in the races on a race bike. And that's kind of how it started. Mm. But you had, so you had natural talent right away and people were seeing that and saying, hey, you, this kid needs to go yeah, racing. Yeah, if someone knows anything about bikes, they can often go, that guy's got something. You just, yeah. you can see it. Yeah. Neat. Um, and so that CT90 started you, what did you evolve into? Did your dad <laughs> buy you a race bike? Well, we were too rich. Um, so blue collar sport it went like this right. and um he saved money all year and christmas was coming and penton had just come out and that was the machine uh the mm -hmm. saxes were out there but the pentons came and it was like this was you know like a real bike the huskies were prior and anyway we my dad couldn't afford a 125 but we just made it to afford a 100 okay so we rode the 100 and that's how it started, and uh, I'm pretty sure at that point you could just trade out the cylinder, the piston, and the head, and you had a 125. Mm. So that came later. Uh, something, just so you folks know this, in those days, the Hunter class was the big meow. Yeah, they had a lot of entries, that one. CMC days, Carlsbad, Saddleback, it was not uncommon to have two to three hundred riders on hundreds. Mm. I mean, if you could win the 100 class that day, you were the man. The 250s and the opens, it's a good job. But you won the 100 class. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That was a prestigious class. Tough yeah. business. Wow. Well, that's, that's kind of like in, in a lot of sports you look at, like, uh, you know, if you look like MotoGP, it's a select few. But you look at Moto3, there's more teams, more riders, more people getting in. And the racing is just tight and yeah. packed. And like a lot of times those feeder classes are the ones that have the big numbers and are the most competitive because you've got 20 guys that could win. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not so much about the bike. It's, it's yeah, the riding. Yeah, it's more the riding. Yeah. Who did you grow up uh, when you started racing? Who did you race with? Oh, geez. Uh, Billy Urban was our fast guy in the early days. And I remember the first time I saw him practicing on a bull taco. He was a gymnast in high school. And he just was, you know... I could even get that strong one. <laughs> and I'm watching him go around this track, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way in hell I'm ever going to beat this guy. Yeah. And it's very early stages, and while watching him, a guy goes by me on a 400 Mako doing a wheelie, and we measured. It was about a mile and a half, because we had so much land back then, open land. Yeah Before he hit a street, and a Wayne, excuse me, there's this gnat here that's driving me yeah. nuts. Uh, Wayne Hosaka from San Diego, who's a famous flat tracker, did some motocrosser. That was him. Huh. And uh, so when you're little coming up, I'm sure you guys had your idols looking at, yeah. how am I going to do this? Yeah. And then you just slowly get it and you reach out and you push yourself and um, you get there. For me, going back on the 100, um, we couldn't really afford it. My dad was an excellent poker player. 
So he get all the boys over there on Friday night. <laughs> That's how he was making extra money? <laughs> Shake him down. <laughs> if he won, we were going racing. <laughs> get the point. And, uh, I was doing my part. I was making sandwiches and snacks. You're walking behind and the I'm other walking players. Going, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't give any sides. Good thought. It's going to flush. <laughs> it's a flush, Dad. It's a flush. He's buffing. Yeah, fold. <laughs> He's full of it. So I'd sell him sandwiches and... Um, Oh, nice. Look that's how we, went, that's how we went racing. Yeah. And the other thing was, and it was. Just imagine your dad's friend. I'm broke. <laughs> Can I do an IOU for the sandwich? I'm freaking starving. I will gladly pay you tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, all you poker players that supported my dad back then, if you're still alive, thank you so much. Because you were a big part of it. But uh, That was the original uh, GoFundMe page. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, I like it. So. I started getting good, excuse me, and better and better. And um, but the poor part and and starting out that age, guess who had to be the mechanic and learn everything? The little kid that was 12, 11 years old. Yeah. We couldn't afford mechanics. My uncle was always there, but I learned everything about uh, transmissions. And how the motor works, and like I knew so much by I was fourteen, it was incredible. And because of that, I can feel anything on a bike. Um, Yamaha and Honda uh, in those days, and a lot of them would always come to me at the end. What do you think? What is it when we do testing? And I could pick it out right away. I said, "This has got to change. Second gear is too close here. Your your timing's off. You got to do this." And they're looking at the little kid, and they don't want to really believe him. But yeah. that's how in tune, for us guys that made pro, you had to, the ones that really excelled, understood if the bike was going to finish the race one or not, was right here going to here. Mm. Because the bikes weren't the best. Yeah. And all you newer generations, you guys should think about this. When you see us old goats, and like the Japs learned, because they were the manufacturers, they never wanted to listen to us Americans. The, you know, superior bike, you know, pat on their chest. And, um, well, guess what? It took about a year and a half, two years for them to realize that their 150-pound rider in Japan was four seconds left slower. Yeah. And we're the ones that are going fast and dying from no suspension and mm. crashes and everything. We, we really were the backbone. And to describe it, in the 70s, when uh, YZ first came out from Don Jones that Yamaha copied, that he developed, every year from there started. It was a suspension war. One year, maybe two. Then it went to horsepower. Then it went to brakes. Yeah. And it was development through all those years. Even in 78, like when the CR250 came out, fantastic machine. Yamaha had a fairly good 250 and um, all of them, but they made leaps and bounds after they started listening to us because they couldn't do it. And if you were in that type of years in 80s through 70s, you remember you get the bike and you just collapse it. Yeah. The suspension was so soft because they had 150 pound Japanese yeah. riders and this is good enough for them. It's good enough for the states well, or wherever. Well, the other thing, too, is like you said, if he's going slower, he's not attacking the rough stuff as hard, which means, once again, 
you get a bigger, stronger guy with more speed, it's going to bottom out on the braking bumps. Exactly. So um, a lot of this development never stops, mind you. And it's led us to the four-stroke, and that's still developing. But it's pretty incredible to see it. It was a rapid rate back then, though. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was uh, Feast or Phantom. If you had a bad bike, you had to be physically really strong to keep yourself going because you're getting beat up to death. One, you're trying to go fast, and uh, it was tough. A lot of years, everybody had bad bikes. Yeah. You folks, when you guys, I think it was. 88 or 89 when AMA said, oh, the factory bikes are too good and the, the other guys don't have a chance. So they stopped that rule. Uh, the production rule? The production rule. 86. 86. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was really not a good decision. And that is prior to that, all the privateers and all the factories were still working. Everybody was using their head. And even the privateers, the novices, uh, local experts in uh, intermediate, novice, you know, they looked at it and they, they were working on their bikes. If I port this, if I put this cylinder, yeah. do a pipe, and guess what? The money's moving. Mm-hmm. Everybody's working hard. We were giant numbers instantly over the years. I heard you guys talking earlier about the four-stroke. Don't get me wrong. I love the four-stroke. It's... An amazing bike, and um, it's got its fallbacks. And as you guys discussed, the numbers that the money that the Japanese made off the four-stroke, it's gotten out of hand, like you said. But the biggest points is, and this is just a wild number: eighty percent of the people couldn't buy that bike. Eighty percent of them couldn't work on that bike. Yeah, you blow a motor; it's thirty-five hundred dollars. Two and that stroke. bike's only, when it's used, they go, well, I'll just trade it in. What's it worth? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, worth nothing. It's nothing. worth three and a half grand. Once yeah. you fix the motor, that's going to cost three and a half yeah. grand. So Everybody knows that it's been ran out. Yeah. And you're buying maybe a lemon that's going to cost you another 3000 and the motor on top of what you just paid for it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, those are the downsides. We... We could keep going on that forever, but uh, I want to focus on your career. You, it's, uh, you mentioned something even to me earlier. You had a picture with Joel Robert. That was your guy. That was my mentor. When did you first see him, meet him? Like, when did that start? You know what? Uh, God gifted all luck. Or My dad spoke uh, Flemish. And huh. It's like a Belgian French. And um, so they're over here in the United States in 66. 67, somewhere in there. And Edison Dye was in San Diego, the first importer for Husqvarna motorcycles. So, you know, we're kind of right in the groove, like, say, Corona is today. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all happening. So they come to a racetrack that we called Tahisa, which is now a casino on an Indian reservation. We go to watch these guys. I've got Roger to... um, Roger DeCoster posters, and my first one ever that I fell in love was Joel Robert. It was a Marlboro cigarette ad. And he's got this thing leaned over, and all the lines are correct through his shoulders, down his torso, and the bike's at the right angle, and it's just about as good as sex. (laughs) For this kid, you know, it, it was an amazing picture. So I started reading up 
on Joel, and he had a bunch. He was a character. He was pulling pranks all his life, and um, I copied his style. I tried to be him. So there he is in San Diego. My parents take me to watch him. God, does this get any better for, <laughs> you know, 11-year-old okay, kid, 11, yeah. 11, 9 years old? And so my dad goes and talks to these guys because they're doing nothing during the week. They're waiting for the next uh, put-on race to show, introduce uh, motocross to the United States. Yeah. And so my mom was the excellent cook. She could cook Czech. She could cook German and Mexican like just like nobody's business. And so we invited them over. And Dave Bickers, Roger DeCoster, Joe Robert, Marcel Swartz from Spain, a guy from England, I can't think of his name. Not Graham Noyce, was it? No, this is before Graham. Graham Cracker, we call him. Before. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get the drift. We had. These guys just roll up to your house. Yeah, and they roll up to my house. And. They're in the backyard, and the feast is on, and Joel's drinking and telling his jokes, and he was imitating a, a Texas cowboy, because, you know, in Europe, they see all these films, mm -hmm. and the Westerns were big, John Will, partner, yeah. and so Joel's kind of doing his skits, and somewhere along the way, Joel was able to purchase a gun, not realizing what the gun really did. And he starts pop-shotting and shooting around, and people are running because he thinks it's like a toy gun. You oh, understand? my gosh, he's shooting real bullets? He's shooting real bullets. Spraying them around. And people are running. He's shooting the street signs, going down the freeway. <laughs> I and love America. <laughs> <laughs> the American dream is alive. Yeah, and for Robert, it was. And so uh, he's a madman. And... I've been a prankster all my life, even too much because I copied and loved the man. We've become really excellent friends. Yeah. The stupidest thing I asked him was at that party, Saddleback, I don't know if you guys were around them, they had Suicide Downhill. Yeah. I think it was called Suicide. Suicide, yeah. And uh, it was scary, scary, scary. And it was all rock, like shale rock. Yeah, yeah. man. If you get off here... I can kind of roll or skid, but wait, there's the shell rock sticking about four inches. That's going to take my shoulder off. You know, you're going through your head and you go, whoa, don't want to get off here. Yeah. yeah. So the point was, and I told Joel, I looked at I go, Joel, I'm so afraid to go down this hill in third gear. Do you have any suggestions? He goes, Monty, just go down in first gear. And he was serious. And I looked at him, I was like, oh, crap. He must think I'm an idiot, <laughs> you know. Yeah. He's just basically, you see, you're an intermediate. It just went, I just went, yeah, yeah. and walked off, you know. <coughs> so, uh, but I got to tell you a story if I can. Yeah. We were in Europe. My dad's uh, family was from, he's Czech. So, um, we go to visit the relatives and we go to CZ Factory. And um, anyway, we meet all the factory mechanics and, I'm a 12-year-old kid at that time. And at those days, you had to be, I think it was 21. You couldn't even get on yeah. a bike. So the riders, the factory mechanics, says, we got a, a national, the biggest national of the country, in Jekyll next week. So they invite me and my dad. 
We go, word gets out to the promoter that there's this American kid there. He's 12 years old and he races motocross in the United States. Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> and he's here now? And so one thing led to another. All I know is I'm looking at the track. I think this is a real track. Uphills, downhills, off cambers. Take no promoters in America. I am sick of the flat tracks. <laughs> Let's get back to motocross. Let's give us some downhills and off cambers and make it aggressive like it should be. Learn something. So anyway, there's a little vent on that. But so I've never rode a 250 before and they give me a twin pipe 250 and uh, I'm supposed to make the parade lap. Never been around the track in my life. And I'm going, Dad, I don't know about this. I've only rode 125s. And you want to put me on this monster in front of these 60, 70,000 people? He goes, yeah, it'll be okay. Just concentrate, son. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, yeah. <laughs> Remember the time you got me on the first bike and you just pushed yeah. me off? Yeah, here we go again. Yeah, thanks, Dad. So um, when I say motocross tracks, and the reason I brought that up earlier is I was going around the track and I went up this first uphill so steep. I'm just hanging on and grunting. And, you know, you're looking up ahead and I thought something was weird. And I looked out the side of my goggles on both sides and there's people walking up the hill horizontal like this to the hill. Yeah. I get back and I studied and I looked again and these people have ropes in their hands. They're tied off from the trees above and they're crawling up the hill. That's how steep it is. Viewpoint. You gotta have a rope. That's how steep it was. And at that point, I knew I was in big trouble because <laughs> I still got to go through the whole track. And uh, thank God I did finish that lap um, straight to the restroom, <laughs> fix myself, and um, we did it. But in that process, um, a guy walked up to me, Peter Dobry, and this guy was a teacher of motocross, and he asked my father if it he would come to his farm and teach me. Well, his son was Peter Dobry also. And at that point, he was leading Paul Fredericks and DeCoster and all these folks that were just the best. And um, that's where I learned how to stand up. Mm. This old man that was probably 80 years old back then. Jeez. He was the guy, his job in Checo, if there was a big crash or a bus or something happened, he'd go in, look at the skid marks, and he could figure all the speeds, who did what, to find out why it happened. Well, that's what he did with motocross. And that's when I learned to stand up through turns and do power don'ts, standing up, and they do that all today, but we're talking 1968. Mm -hmm. And um, so that came from that, but... Getting back to Joel, we went to a GP also. This is the madman that Joel is. So we get there, we watch practice. No Joel. Watching Roger, watching Sylvan get bores, and you know, this is how impressive, yeah. little kid. I go, uh, Dad, Joel didn't practice. He goes, no, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'll go talk to mechanics. He shows up. Not until the day of the race, goes out and this guy, he, well, let me back up. He shows up in a car. 
He's got a girl in each arm and he can't even walk. He's whiskey throttled it <laughs> to the max. I mean, I'm going, Dad, he's not even going to be able to race. You could tell he was drunk even he as a kid. Walk. You're looking, yeah. The girls were holding up. They'd been up all night doing what, you know, what they do <laughs> with the booze. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm stunned. Here's my hero. And uh, they get him over there, slap around the mechanics and pouring water on him. And time's running out, and they got to go out and do the uh, time for to get on for your starting gate. Okay. Finally, he's just like hanging on the bike. <laughs> they push him away. I go, Dad, he's going to crash. He gets around. He gets on the track. And I'm going, oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. <laughs> Next lap a little bit. Get four laps, I think it was back then. I'm going, well, a little better, but it's not even close. Does the same thing in the third lap. Right before they go to the last lap of timing. It's like somebody hit a switch. Comes in, fast time. We're all stunned going, how did that just happen? No sooner he gets back to the pit, he's off the bike, here's his two girlfriends or dates, and off they go again. Hey, whatever he's doing is working. It was Stick working. So Dad, point, I figured it out. We cut a good party. <laughs> at that point, I was convinced that um, that's my man. Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's a six-time world champion. And I know a lot of this new generations think that um, uh, the guys here are that, like, uh, oh, Ricky Carmichael, let's take. But I'm here to tell you, there was nobody faster than this guy. And like Roger, I think, was a four- or five-time champion. Roger put everybody in their place. Amazing man. Yeah. Roger told us a story about Joel. Uh, down, were they in Australia? And he was pretending to be drunk. He, was, he poured yeah. water into a bottle, like a whiskey bottle, and was walking <laughs> around the pits just, you know, chugging it. And he's up on the line pretending like he's drunk and can't start his bike. Anyway. Yeah, they the had bucket. to convince him to, to let him race. Yeah, the Remember, like, they no, were like, he can't, he can't race. race. Yeah. And then he's like, no, he's not drunk. And the then the biggest prankster I've ever met in my life, and I love him. Yeah, I, I love hearing those stories. Those are the best. It's funny when you said Joel's sponsored by Marlboro because he smoked. He did. I mean, he was, was, he was really endorsing the product. <laughs> I mean, your motor grocery is like a world champion. Everybody's watching him, and he, he's sitting there in the shade of the van having a beer and smoking a cigarette. It's like, Okay. <laughs> I don't remember who it was, but I think in one of his title battles, it, it might have been one of the Russian riders or something, but apparently he just pulled up to the start line. Of course, they had open face helmets, and he had a cigarette in his mouth, and then uh, they put the 30-second board up, and he took a cigarette and stubbed it on the, the, the grip of the, of next the competitors, <laughs> just stubbed it out and burnt a hole in his throttle grip, put his mask on, and the gate dropped and went out and won. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I don't doubt it. He's the original dogger. He's the original bad boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, all right, I want to talk about an event. In 1971, at 14 years old, you competed in an inter-AMA race here. <laughs> uh, oh, now the dark side comes out. <laughs> and you got DQ'd because you, you had to be 16, right? Like, That's correct. So you got DQ'd and banned from AMA competition. The first interim. How did you even get signed up? I mean, how did that happen? Did you lie about your age? A little. <laughs> <laughs> we made a fake birth certificate. 
<laughs> but you were good enough, right? Like so. Well, we were beaten up pretty good, and um, we didn't have a full factory ride. We were riding Rickman Matisse, and back then the Rickman was very light, like two hundred pounds. Uh, the Montessa package uh, motor was not the best, but my, my uncle just made it a rocket ship. Hmm. So we go to Colorado Interim, and. All the Europeans are there, all the gang. And I think Jeff Hicks actually did very well. But um, in the first model, I believe I finished seventh or eighth. I was uh, first American. And the second model, I won. Jeez. So that was in the first American, I think it was Brad Lackey at ninth or tenth. Yeah. So I just went out and beat all the Euros. And, and one memory, Dave Bicker's a big Brit. I mean, he's British and he's big, strong. And uh, he had to be, he rode those BSAs for all those years. But he was on a CZ. And um, here he comes to our pit and he's not happy. And it's like, I'm going to get the crap beat out of me. He comes in and my dad and my uncle are like, Okay, here, here we here go. We he walks in, he goes, boy, I just had to come over and tell you, he was bumping ass pretty hard, and I thought I better let him go. Oh. That was it. And I thought, well, here it is. I did something really bad, but I was just trying to win. Yeah. Huh. So in that process, we got a ride with Yamaha. The next race was Houston, and we showed up. Set fast those lap times and like, wow, we're we're gonna do something here. <laughs> well, our buddy Jim O'Neill, Jim, still like you, but <laughs> he went to the AMA and says, That kid's only 14 years old. He's not 18. Because our AMA role was 18. Oh. So I didn't race no more. But the next year the way the birth, my birthday and everything went, they lowered it to 16. And that's when I got my pro license, I think eight or nine days before 72 Super Bowl of Motocross. And so that was, you signed with Don Jones, with Yamaha, right? Yes. The Gary Jones' father. Dwayne Jones, Gary Jones, Jim Weiner. Okay. Yep. So that was our team. And... Was your first race with them the Super Bowl of Motocross that year? No. I got or that was at the end of the year? No, no. It was like July 9th or 8th. Okay. Like the week before, we had an Interim or Transm, they called it, and Thorsten. All the guys were racing that series, too. And I raced up in um, Washington. It wasn't Walsh It was another. Okay. Olympia. All right. And um, so I actually did race there. I did so-so. I think I had a sixth and a breakage. Okay. Then we went straight to the Super Bowl. So it was your second race with Yamaha, your second big race? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you were 16 years old and like just a, how but many you, days? You would have Nine just turned days. 16. Yeah. Yeah, because your birthday is June. June 29th. And then you said the race is July. July 8th, I think. Okay. So you're like a week into being yeah. a teenage, uh, 16 So this is, this is a record that still stands, like I mentioned <coughs> the onset yeah. of the show. And I don't know that it'll ever be broken. I mean, Stuart missed it by... A couple weeks? No, he was like six months. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Everybody um, said, no, he did it, but 
he won the 125 support class, not the big class. Right. But it was about right. six months. But the point being, I think, um, isn't the age now 18 again? They right. tried to do that, and I it didn't it go through. Still, yeah, they tried to. They said it was going to be enforced, and I think at the 11th hour it got shut down. So it's a possibility, but like you said, I don't think so. There's no kid coming out of amateurs lining up at A1 and winning the 450 main event. Well, no. For no sure not do the big that. class. No yeah. one would ever do it. But even the 250 class, for someone to – the numbers to just hit that right and be that good, because who comes out and wins their first race? It's very few guys. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. It's looking <laughs> good for you. That adds yeah. to – Might, might so, stick. So, take us through that night um, that or that day. Um, did you think you had a chance at winning? I mean, th- that was the first Supercross race. What was your thoughts about – the track in the stadium and you obviously liked it <laughs> well yeah i mean we went out there and um was there excitement about it or would you be like ah oh, this is janky I and mean, what was the thought process back then? i think it was more excitement in the promoter and the factories and the spectators uh-huh. for the rider you know what are we doing inside of the stadium and it's all flat and it's got all these uh uh whoops and hairpin <laughs> turns and we're on seven and four inch of travel like you guys are trying to kill us you know yeah. so there was a lot of bickering in the pits about it i had pushed myself myself so hard because again we i was i come from the small town of santee and um you helped how we went to the races making our money and so i pushed myself when i thought i was fast I'd make myself go faster and think about every inch of downhills and uphills and turns. That was racked in. So I practiced so hard on the difficult stuff that when it came to stuff like this, it was easy. Mm. And um, so I said, I'm not going to complain. I'm actually having fun with this. I'm standing up and burning the U-turns like nobody, and I'm jetting through the hoops, and I'm going, I love it. This is okay with me. Yeah. And then the racing came, and um, this was, (laughs) it's a double-edged sword, but, so in my younger days, as I said, they were all at my house having dinner, and I asked that stupid question, Joel, which I just went, walked away, (laughs) and here I am in the midst of it, and I get good starts, and um, I finished, I think, three seconds. The toughest part about it was, I just turned 16. I am very young. Yeah. You're racing against 25, 35 world champions that are there. Thorsten's there and Hawken Anderson and uh, I'm my Mexico at Falta. And, you know, it was a big crew. And I'm passing these guys. The hardest thing was coming up, like Grant here is my hero, right? And I got his picture on my wall and this... And I'm reading Grant Langston, oh man, one day. And I'm passing them. Yeah. Then you pass them and they're going, this can't be, po- that's my hero. I can't pass him. Yeah. This is not supposed to be happening. And it did. So you know what? It was young enough maybe and stupid enough not to understand what was going on. So I just raced it and I went. And we pulled it off. It was big. Big, big, big for yeah, huge. whoever do. A little side bit was Thorson Holland was doing a lot of the engineering on the YZs. 
for Japan. He, they kind of put him in charge. And Thorsten came up before the race, and he's looking over our bikes, the American bikes. He goes and sees mine. And those YZs back then, the pegs, had two pinch bolts on the foot pegs. It had a stub coming off the bottom of the frame. Yeah. With notches, right? So you could turn your pegs forward or backwards. Okay. But they were like three inches ahead of the swinging arm bolt. And I couldn't feel the bike very well. I kept saying to my dad, this, it doesn't work. I go, when I get on a teeter-totter, I'm going back, Santee common sense, to balance yourself, you got to have your, your body in the middle of that pivot point, one leg on each side so you can tell it what to do and feel what it's doing. So I was looking at the foot picks. I go, I just wonder. I did this myself. I took the pegs off and turned them around. And darn if it didn't bring them back right under the swinging arm pivot point. Bolted it up. We shortened the shifter, shortened the rear brake pedal. And man, it was awesome. I could make that thing do things. So Thorsten's looking at this and he's going, oh, Marty, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. So the race is over. <laughs> he's got Hawking Anderson. He's got all the factory Yamaha guys, including the engineers. And he's pointing at that. <laughs> and he comes over to him. He goes, he goes, can you explain to me, Marty, why you did this? And as in the same story I just told you about the teeter-totter, I said, because, Thorson, I couldn't, the picture's so far up, I couldn't feel. I wasn't getting a true reading of the back or the front. I needed to be more in the center. And so they left. I do a Carlsbad. Uh, Scott Burnworth puts a uh, Carlsbad reunion after yep. the San Diego Supercross. I hadn't gone in four years. There was something was always going on. So I promised I'd go. I'd go. Thorson's there. And uh, I never knew to this date. And he pulled me aside. He says, I want to talk to you. And everybody's... You know, trying his art. I go to a couple of my friends and my gal Haley. I said, "Keep everybody back. I need to talk to Thorsten. He wants to talk to me privately." And he comes in. He's telling me about how he watched my career in life. And he says, "You remember that night in '72 at the LA Coliseum?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "You were complaining about the foot pegs." He says, "I want you to know, you set the standard in motocross. That became." standardized after we did it at Yamaha, every company followed suit. Mm -hmm. He says, you're the one that made that happen. And I thought, it's not for bragging rights, but... It's pretty cool. When you hear that coming from a Thorsten Hallman, yeah. well, you know, it's like, wow. Well, like you said at the time, you're probably young enough to not really take it all in, but looking back even to this day, it's still a historic moment in the sport, you know, and like like you said, indirectly with your performance and maybe some bike changes, you revolutionized the sport moving forward. That is cool. Well, it it's is. unique. And it speaks to the, the feel that you had for the bike, like you said. I mean, most people wouldn't be able to say, I'm not getting the feel, you know, what they just wouldn't know what to do. Right. But you kind of looked at it and went, you know, no, they need to be back here by the swing arm pivot. That's crazy. Hence, racing is racing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to I show this. So for people who... <laughs> You brought this in, and I'm just, like, blown away. This is the actual jersey that he won the L.A. Coliseum Super Bowl of motocross in. And it still fits him. 
And it doesn't fit him anymore, but it's actually all these letters and numbers are stitched on. It's this is like the coolest jersey. That is a real factory. MD How rad is jersey. that? What's it? It's like a polyester too, huh? Yeah, I'm not I mean, sure. it's, it's not cotton. I it's don't not think. cotton. It certainly wouldn't feel we'll, good we'll in one those of these Alabama if, summers. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're listening on a podcast, we'll throw up a picture on our Instagram I like page, back but. in the day how it's just covered in sponsors like they are today. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> Yamaha. It just Nothing says else. Yamaha. Love it. Yeah. Don't you think it was much cleaner back then, guys? Yeah. You could pick out your rider easier. Oh, yeah. They were most solid colors. As the gentleman in here said, you really have to study unless you're like, you're broadcasting and so you know and you're in the know, but the average spectator he's got to like really look or know because it's just they all look the same yeah 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 there's some riders you can tell from their style you can see easily That's who they are way. from their riding style right yeah right and they're usually really well, good riders because they've got that unique technique yeah. and mitch at pro circuit sort of set the standard for teams all looking the same and it's a nice professional look but it's tough to tell guys apart, and sometimes if there'll be like a number 36 and 63 on the team, you're like, I don't know. Several it's times this year, <laughs> several times with the Yamaha guys, because they yeah, got the like, they got a bunch of double digit number riders 24, 32, 39, <laughs> yeah. this, that, and they all look identical, and you're like, yeah. And they come in the first turn together, it's like, oh boy. I have noticed in the broadcast a couple of times, we were like, who is that in front? Is that yeah. Ferrandez? Is that Cooper? Hear, yeah. Who is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cameras, if they zoomed out a little bit, you, you can't don't see the number. You now can't you're see just it. going, uh, there's a blue bike there's coming a blue straight bike at in us. Front. Yeah, no, I've seen, yep, you're right. I, I did always like the clean prints of, of your era, but the coolest thing to me was helmets. Uh, guys, for the longest time, used to always be able to do an, their own custom helmet. Right. Troy, Troy Lee, you know, led that whole movement that's and, what and started, having these cool helmets. But. I, I don't know if that started him, his career, but it had to be a huge part. I mean, you look back at Tim Hart, rest in peace, he'd always tape his orange helmet with white tape, and it was always the same, and sometimes he taped on a balloon, but you always knew, <laughs> you always it, was, knew. Yeah. it was Tim Hart. You yeah. didn't have to even guess. I mean, like he was saying, um, when the start of the Nationals go and you see all these blue bikes... I don't know if that's Fernandez or you really got to wait almost yeah, a half a lap yeah. to hear who it is. That's you got to wait for the commentators to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and you guys, like you said, you're watching it in a little monitor. It's, it's not like you guys have a better look we're at seeing, it. We're seeing yeah, the it's, same worse, thing. it's worse for you. I'm looking at a 65 inch TV yeah. and you're looking at a 12 inch <laughs> oh, screen. BS, your TV's 85. Oh, wow. Well. All right. I, I didn't want to blow it up too bad. Yeah. So what, is, what does that record mean to you, being the youngest rider ever to win? Is that. Is that um, you know, it didn't really mean much. The trip home was horrible. We had um, our transporter, which we called cycle liners. And um, there was, they were Long Beach mail buses, and they had a cell on them. And uh, five of them were sold, I believe. We bought one. I, I paid, in early 72, I paid $3,000 for a 40-foot 220 Cummings Diesel mail bus. <laughs> and it's called Highway Post Office. And a lot of towns in the U.S. didn't have, the smaller towns didn't have post office. So this thing would pull into a town, stop. That was your post office. It had a mail slot. and ah. So there it was. But uh, Vesco bought one for his land speed record. Um, and Husqvarna Motorcycles had one. Uh, Penton, John Penton Motorcycles had one, and uh, High Point. I think that was about it, but they're all gone. 
I forgot the point why we got her. What was the point? Well, did that record mean a lot to you? You said you the trip, said home, the trip was home, home was miserable. So I'm assuming That's something happened with your rig. <laughs> we <laughs> thank you very much for this. Uh, remind this old fart that's losing his mind. I don't worry. We, I have the same problem. We broke down in Watts. Oh, no. You know, getting out of the Coliseum and all the celebration loaded up. It's 2, 2.30. And when that thing broke, nobody slept because we were in it. It was like, who's going to kill us? <laughs> you know, we all had wrenches and yeah. we, we were ready. Give me the biggest wrench you got in the toolbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but when I was finally over with and getting home and going to sleep, I put my trophy on my dresser. And um, I can't even remember what time I woke up midday and I looked and I thought maybe it was a dream, you know, mm. and there's the trophy on my dresser going, you won the Super Bowl of motocross and you beat all the girls. That's when it actually hit me yeah. and it's never really meant, not meant, it's never completely caught me until like the last 10 years. And it's weird. So it wasn't like a, you got to remember, it's the first time. So I think there was only like 23,000 spectators, if I remember correct. Maybe 30. I doubt it. But all years, you know, so many people didn't go to it. In the last 10 years, it's like, hey, I was there that night. And I was there that night. And it's just, uh, it's amazing. And it brings back memories. And yeah. the part about being 16 years old. I wonder about that sometimes, and I'm going, that might just last forever. Good chance. Probably. I, 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 it would take a, all the stars lining up for yeah. someone to, to beat that record. And, and I, Because I if you want to get technical, you can't say, I was also 16. No, it's got to be by age. And he was like 16 and a week. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to have to hit it, like have your birthday and go in a Supercross. That's hitting the ground with you. <laughs> But I, I, I did this, we talked about this with Townley a little bit because he left home and went to Europe at a very young age. Uh, GL did the same thing. And this always blows me away. I like to put myself back in the mindset, okay, when I was 16, what was I doing? And would I have been capable of, of handling that physically, mentally? I mean, first of all, I was only about this tall at 16, so I couldn't ride a, a 250. Or... Isn't he still that tall? <laughs> <laughs> no, he went from there to there. <laughs> there was an inch yeah, in no. between. Yeah, I agree too. But... That's a lot to handle for a 16-year-old kid. Like you said, passing your, your boyhood heroes, you're still a boy, and then you just win this, this massive event. Like, that yeah. is so much to handle for a 16-year-old. It's crazy. There's so many interesting stories off of that of, um, like a Steve Wise, that just happened to be on the West Coast on vacation with his dad. And they drove by and they saw the actual billboard on the freeway and it says, this week, Super, uh, Super Bowl at the L.A. Coliseum. And instantly, Steve had just started riding a bit. And said, Dad, can we, you know, he's like pulling on a shirt. So they go. Uh, a Brock Glover comes up with his dad, and I think Ricky Johnson's with them. And when, the point I'm trying to get to here is you don't know the effect you have, or at least I didn't, just because the way I grew up. But a lot of times you don't know the effect that you put on people with sports and doing something like that. And the point is, that night, Steve Weiss told his dad, 
that dad, I'm going to be a professional motor, motocrosser. The same night, Brock told me, not that night, but he told me later on, Brock told his dad and Ricky in talking to Brock, now these are kids, right? They're on mini bikes still. Both told their parents, or at least Brock did, I'm not sure about Ricky, but Ricky told them also that he made up his mind. They were going to become motocross stars. Yeah, you, you blazed a path for him. They were like, he can do so, it. He's an American guy. I can do it. Yeah. It's kind of good. It's, I appreciate that point that I was able to um, inspire. inspire people, yeah. Yeah. which had no clue. I had no clue that was going on. So, And I've been hearing more and more in the last 10 years, and I've had a couple of people arriving that said that um, they're getting ready to take their lives. They were just done with everything. And... Um, my life and uh, inspiration with Moto for so long is that they spared their lives. They didn't take their lives, and they went on to become trail riders, and one's a racer. Mm. So it's got to be good, right? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. No, it's amazing. You you inspired a whole, what some would call the best era of racing, those guys from the 80s, and you inspired them to, to chase after what you know they wanted to do. Yeah. It's crazy. Live your dream. Yeah, that's so awesome. That's one of the fun things about doing the shows for us younger guys is just going down memory lane. And it's funny how many stories where guys have stories and then they got a story about their competitor and then we get a chat with who yeah. their competitor was and they got a story about <laughs> them. And you realize, and you see this time timeline of all these legends and how they grew up. And like you said, it seemed like if you weren't from... <laughs> the eastern counties of San Diego, you weren't going to be getting into motocross. Yeah. You know, it's just funny looking at that. And then even just how the bikes change, you know. The Spaniards oh. were on it for a while. Then it was the, the Eastern Europeans and the Scandinavians and the British and then the, the Europeans and then the Japanese. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Do you remember how, uh, what the purse was that night? It did, and did that affect you? Oh, I didn't even care about purse. Um, but it wasn't much. If, if I remember right, I think I made $7,500 per moto. That's 15 grand? I mean, that, that makes no, no, okay. no, 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 no. That's $300. Oh, oh, you're saying the <laughs> see purse. How, see the how young purse. he is? Jeez. Oh, uh, <laughs> the payoff. Gotcha. Yeah, that was like 300 bucks. I thought you meant for first. You're saying that's well, the whole first, purse. First was maybe 150, 200. Yeah. We didn't make nothing off that. Yeah. Just pride and breaking bones and still about the battling. same now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I hear. That yeah. good point. All right. Um, before we piss anyone off, uh, uh. <laughs> so you left. You didn't stay with Yamaha long though. No, hey, I got CZ. another first that will never be beaten. Let's hear it. 14 factory rides. Try it. 14 factory well, rides. Well, so I... I, <laughs> I didn't know. You, you had to circle back around with the same teams then again, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I have this in here, and we'll, we'll walk through it, but you rode for five manufacturers in four years, kind of just going from one to another. Yes. And then... So let's, let's go through that. You went from Yamaha to CZ. Why? What happened? Um, Shortly after that... I can't uh, remember the whole detail was... But nobody knew Carl's bad better than me. I could do it in my sleep. And I was the fastest guy 
there, period. And then we have a Grand Prix, I believe, came there. So Yamaha tells me I'm too young and I'm not, um, I'm not ready to ride the international class, the 500. And that really, I wanted to race that on the 500. And it just, it really pissed me off mm-hmm. for them to say, I mean, I, if I was too young for that, why'd you let me race the LA Coliseum in 72 with the internationals yeah. on the 250 class, right? So this wasn't going over good. It's my hometown. All my friends are there. And I'm going to go beat these guys. Nope, you're riding the 250 class. And that was the support class at that point for that GP. So that started the whole thing. Didn't end very good. <laughs> you don't seem see like that. you were one. Like you had your mindset and that was what it was going to be. Well, well, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I mean back then, then it was thing. the 500 Grand Prix. Wait, why, so would you, had be- why would you, if you're just like in Vegas odds, the guy that's won the most races there probably ever, the fastest that's ever been there, you're not going to... You just won this. Why are you this, not going to run yeah, them? Yeah. Who, did, who were they running in the 500 class? Oh, geez. Back then? Were they protecting the I want to say maybe Mike Bill, who was with me then. Oh, Weiner was one, Gary Jones. Dwayne rode the support class. Dwayne's passed away. Rest in peace there, Dwayne. Um, and then the Europeans, you know, they were all there, but... I, I didn't get to do it. So you rode the 250 class? I did. Huh. Very much, very unhappy. Yeah. Did you smoke everyone? You know, I don't know. I think I did win. Huh. I'll have to go back. I, I'll have to go back and look, but it seems to me I did. I don't remember. Okay, so that just kind of left a bad taste in your mouth with Yamaha. And so, it was bad, yeah. Which I often say, that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. So, CZ. How'd you get there? CZ. Isn't that where you went next? Yep. CZ yeah. was dependable. Did your dad want you to ride CZs? A little family pride? Uh, you know, he liked the mechanics because he could speak Czech with him and yep. BS and do all that. But um, I don't think it mattered. But I was mean enough when I wanted to be. In motocross, I say, there's a Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde in every one of you. Yeah. And if you don't got that, you're not going to win. When the, tra- when the gate drops in your mindset, if you haven't got that, you're going to beat every single person out there. You might as well just get off the track. Because mm. what are you going to do? Finish ninth? Finish fifth? What's that? So why would you? And um, So when I was offered the CZ ride, it was a works bike. Now, granted, these things are heavy. Uh, back then, I want to say 235. Mm. Which is pretty heavy considering. It's heavy it bike. is. <laughs> I mean, four strokes are up there, but you got to go back to that time limit. A lot of bikes were 217 and yeah. 200 pounds. But um, I rode it, and it was a good traction bike. And uh, I started off at Saddleback, and I was first American. And um, I could just wing it because... The power was just so level, like a four-stroke mm. bike. It was perfect. Mm. And you did a Trans Am that summer. That was at Saddleback. That was uh, Saddleback, yes. And you ended up beating all the American riders there, right? Lackey oh yes. And everybody. Yeah. I was uh, third or fourth overall. 
Yeah. I still laugh when I hear first American because we don't think that way because then for a while after, well, once you guys started getting going, it was American dominance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the Euros were like, I was first European. You know, but it was. It's funny because I hear the early legends say, I was first American. Like, I think 10 years later, they were like, I was the first Euro. Yeah, you're and probably right. And just on that, probably my proudest thing about my win in 72 later over everything was, I think I let it known that even though we were 10, 15 years, 20 years maybe, I think, I got to look at the history books, but uh, that we got the sport here in the United States. Yeah. That it told us Americans, you know what, we can win. And we can beat them. Yeah. Now, let's go after them. I like to think I had part of that getting guys and that mindset. They can be beaten. Yeah, oh, for sure. You well, were. you showed it. This, that Super Bowl That's of Motocross. That's say. what I'm saying. You got Glover sitting in the stands going, this dude just did it. He's from right down the street from right. where I live. I can do it, too. I'm going to do it. You know, I mean, you right. motivated him. That's rad. I love that. Um, so how did the rest of that year go with the CZ? It was, just a, was it an okay season? We did pretty good. We went to Florida Series, and they had Pierre Karsmikers. <laughs> you know, he's, I'm pretty sure he's Dutch, Netherlands. Yeah, Dutch. And if you ever been over there, it's all sand. Yeah, I lived in Holland, so okay, I know exactly you what know, you know, mean. You know, and these guys fly in the sand. You know, we have the sand pits here in San Diego. And honestly, it was one of the biggest pluses we had because it was. And it was rough, and we rode in the summer. It was rough. And factories came down to prove bikes, because it would break anything. Mm. Um, but um, so on the CZ, we're in Florida series, which is all sand. I've got the heaviest bike. And Pierre's on his 210-pound bike. And I was a little bit bigger kid, probably... At that point, I was running about 200. Pierre's probably 170. But I was beating him every race. Mm. We had mutters, and I won. Then AMA decided they were going to enforce the rules, so they weighed our bikes. And it was after the mud race. And it was just to see. Anyway, the bike came back. And there's some, a lot of pictures of it. shows me on the ground out of air. The bike weighed 265 with all the mud on it. Yeah. That's geez. how heavy these bikes. I don't know what the four strokes, but I imagine they get up there too. When well, the, the mud starts Oh, yeah. Them, if they pack with mud, it's going to get similar weight. It's yeah. heavy. But um, then they weighed them uh, dry. And when I found out the weight of the bike, in my head, it just <laughs> shot me. Like, I was Joel, right? I was just... I can't beat that guy. He's yeah. lighter than me. This bike is, uh, you know, X amount of pounds lighter. It just screwed my head up. And so I, I finished up the series, but I didn't win it. Okay. So then? So was that one of the reasons why you then wanted to make a switch? Yes. I wanted to was go cause win. Was because you just wanted to... I get it. Sometimes as a rider, there's something that makes you just go, okay, I'm done here. Well, once you're mentally... Thinking about that. When you're shot, <laughs> come on, 77, the Harley Davidson, 340 pounds. Go out there and beat these guys, Marty. Okay. 
Have you yeah. got an electronic yeah. whip yeah. or something? Yeah, you, yeah you're like, you better have a lot of other cool stuff to compensate <laughs> for this. Uh, All right, so you left CZ, changed manufacturers again. Don Jones left Yamaha. They had a falling out. And Honda was really coming hard to the point where the the original Honda, Securio, I think is his name, flew and met Don Jones in a private meeting in Vegas. And he knew nothing of two-strokes. And Don, you couldn't get a better guy, him and my Uncle Jim. And secretly, my Uncle Jim was porting the barrels and doing all the work on the Joneses and Weinert's and my bike without Hallman and the USI side knowing about it. Oh. So that's how we really had the people. And um, he basically was saying, we don't know nothing about T-Stroke. You're our best bet. And Don was going to stay with Yamaha. And so Mr. Honda asked Don, well, what are you making now? You know? And he tells him, he goes, we'll five times that. What? <laughs> and if you ever knew Don Jones in the day, he always had a, a a look and a expression, and well, uh, yeah, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> you know? Let me think about it. Let uh, me think. Sure, about we thought about it. Yeah. We're in. We had a team meeting. Yeah. Can we sign that right now? And um, so with that, they called me right away and said, "Hey, we want you back on the team okay. with us." And it was perfect opportunity. The bike was good. Uh, I heard a lot of static because I didn't win one of the models in '72 on the Yamaha that um, they were saying, oh, it was just luck. And that really pissed me off. There was no way in hell nobody was going to beat me in 73 at the LA Coliseum. No way. When I hear stuff like that, I'm the wrong guy to say that to because I'm going to prove you wrong every, yeah. every time. That's the way I think. And so we weren't going to have any of that business, and we went out there and beat them straight. Yeah. So you won that again. You also won some nationals that year, right? I did. Um, can't remember which ones, but yep. Yeah, but pretty good year. Not bad. And that, still kind of a rookie. Was that the year that bike got claimed? No, that would be '78. Okay. All right, we'll get to that then. Yep. Let's let's not that. I know one of your Hondas got claimed. So um, that was '73. Good year. You backed up your win at the Super Bowl Motocross. Won some nationals. Then you switched manufacturers again. What right. happened there? We had a falling out on suspension and as i said earlier they weren't listening to us mm. and here we've got honda that's wanting us to make the bike good but they're not listening you know our guys are the faster way faster than you japanese riders no offense but at the time yeah. and we were Still starting to way. nip at the europeans and um so in unadilla national we were just at ends meet and to the point where, you know, this was uh, the reckless Marty Tripes. I wouldn't wear their jerseys. I bought my own white jerseys, <laughs> printed Honda on them. I said, you know what? This looks way better. I like this. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> Kind of being a well. style, style, yeah. stylist back then. And so I rode with that jersey. <coughs> they were having a fit. We were... Fighting before the race, I said, you know what, now you guys really got me mad. So I took a champion sticker, 
Oh, God. Here we go. I put it over the Honda logo on the gas tank on each side. <laughs> oh, so Tell you're the me, guy that started that, the champion <laughs> sticker on the gas tanks. Tell me that didn't go over well. So yeah. we're fighting through the motos. After the first one, I don't even know what I did. The second mode, I'm going to prove you guys a point. They go, well, what do you mean? I go, I'm going to prove you a point. You just stay at the finish line and watch the race. They had no idea what I was up to because Marty Tripes was being wild, Marty Tripes. So I go out there and just smoke them. I knew what I was going to do. I had it planned out. I get up five feet before the finish line and I stop. I wait and wait. Here comes second. Here comes third. I just let them all go by. That was the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> you guys don't want to do that today. Yeah, it's frowned upon me. <laughs> Jeez. Well, you got to set your point in life. You know, sometimes you just enough's enough. You sit there and go with what's not working, people-wise, machine-wise. Yeah. You're not happy, you get a divorce. Here's the part yeah. that, that like, makes me scratch my head, that you could just, when you decide to win... You go out and you could just win. Why didn't you win every race then? I mean, like, was it just a... It's almost like you had to be have a point to prove. If you had a grudge, then it was yeah. on. But you always had the ability to go win. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and it's been asked this many times. I really never have quite figured it out. I think... Well, I you, just, said it, you said it earlier. A lot of it's here. And there's certain people that get motivated by when someone goes, he's too young, he can't do it, he's not good enough, he's whatever. Yeah. I think that's sometimes that mental edge that certain people need to find that little extra. Like, I know for me even, when I was like pissed off, angry, or had a point to prove, that was always my best racing as well. Hmm. It was for you. Yeah. Yeah, you had something to settle and, and uh, make the non-believers believers. Um, so... I was so natural at it, and the fun factor for me was everything. If That's it good. wasn't fun, I was not going to do it. And I didn't figure out that until way too late. I was going to say, if you're riding for factory Honda, they, they probably took some of the fun out of it right <laughs> yeah. there. Most people you talk to are like, yeah, we, we, we had good bikes, made good money, but it wasn't a ton of fun. Right. We weren't together with the Yoda Galas and the holds up the race, my mom cooking and we got Mexican food, and my Yoda Gatas have Japanese food. And, you know, if your poor rider was parked by us and you're walking by, the moms would go out there and grab them by the ear. Who are you? Where's your parents? And they drag you into our pit. And you're going to eat this. And the poor guy's sitting there <laughs> trying to stuff. And, you know, those were the days of our times. And um, it was a big adjustment. We had to leave. And, well, we're factory riders, and yep. we got to do this and that. And, and as you folks all think, it's just so great being a factory rider out there. And you know this, and you know this. Your life changes drastically. You don't go to the high school parties, and you don't see your friends for fishing on the yep. weekends. All that's gone. You're on an airplane Thursday. You come home Sunday night. You're hopefully you're not banged up and beat up. You try to put a day in a practice or two. Yeah. And then you're back on an airplane. Yeah. You live in a hotel bed. And, and our heirs was the Howard Johnson's. Oh, my God. 
Worst food, worst beds, everything was the worst. And you had to figure it out. And what I did is um, I just took the sheets off and laid on the floor. Did you really? You didn't sleep it was in the always, beds? It was always the same. I could got into it. and <laughs> So when I'd land, I'd figured out the foods so bad. I got myself a little hibachi, and I'd bring that to the races and buy food for my mechanic and me. You grill your own food. We'd grill out there and got to be the thing with the spectators. We'd stop by and some were following all the circuits. Hey, Marty, what do you got there? I got barbecue shrimp. <laughs> Guy's all happy. He's <laughs> munching on this thing. And uh, I took care of my mechanic and me. And that's how we got by in those days because, you know, there wasn't very healthy food. And, yeah. and the food that they thought was healthy was not as good as airplane food. Right. That's saying something. <sighs> All right. So you went to Husky that next year then. That's, that's what happened with Honda. You went to Husky. How did 74 go with Husky? Well, that's, I got to do a little memory on that. Didn't go good. Um, the record books show you got second in the series. Yes. You won a race, but you didn't like the bike. It took some work. You know, yeah. the, the swinging arm was very short. And the steering was like a chopper. The power, it was Swedish. I shouldn't say Swedish. It was European. And when you got the Jap bikes, they're putting all this horsepower. It was tough. But in that year, there was the mag. We lengthened the swinging arm. We pulled in the steering rake. We did a lot of work on the motor. And with all that work, it was like 80%. 90% of the Japanese horsepower. Mm. So I had a chance. But um, it did, things weren't going, I broke a collarbone. And so that put me off for six weeks. But um, so, or no, I'm sorry, that's Can-Am. That's 75, let me go back. Actually, we were having a good year. In fact, I believe I was leading the series the last round going into New Orleans. Do you have that or is that correct? I don't. It, it just sort of was. I'm pretty sure that's is. correct. Okay. So. Um, but as we you, always say. You ended up second in the championship, so it couldn't have been a bad year. Well, it should have been a first. Okay. Got, I got it taken away. I'm sitting in the parking lot. I want to say St. Louis. And we all traveled together back then. All the factories and privateers, we all stayed at the same hotel. It was sort of like a giant family. Yeah, big yeah. circus. It's right. So I call Husky and I told him, I have no money. I just paid the hotel bill. I can't get to New Orleans. I haven't got gas money. Well, that's, uh, you know, you've got a contract. And I go, we're leading the series. I'm not going to be able to go. I'm sitting in the parking lot of the Howard Johnsons in uh, St. Louis, I believe. And anyway, one thing led to another, and they weren't going to spend the money for fuel for me to drive to New Orleans. So everybody's gone. I see Don Jones pulling out in his Can-Am transport, and um, he pulls over. He goes, Trips, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm just sitting here, sitting here. And he goes, aren't you going to get on the road? He says, you know, you want to follow us? I said, well, DJ, I can't go. I'm, 
I'm not going to New Orleans. And he stopped and you have to know DJ. He goes, what'd you say? And I said, uh, I'm not going to New Orleans. Why? He goes, I'm out of money. I just paid my hotel bill. There's no money and I can't go. And so he thought I was joking because I was always the prankster. I said, he said, are you joking? I said, no, I'm not joking you. You want to ride a Can-Am? I go, well, what type what are we talking about here? He goes, just stay here. Don't go nowhere. Don stops his truck, parks it, and walks in the hotel. And he comes back a half hour later. And he goes, why don't you ride with us? And he goes, I'll give you $10,000 just for bonus for signing the contract. And here's what you get on top of it. So here's a check of Max in his van going, well, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> New Orleans, here we come. <laughs> that was about it, you know, so. Going on riverboat gambling trips and all kinds of cool stuff. I, I, I couldn't even get out of the parking lot, you know. It's like, come on, guys. And gas was, you know, throw 100 yeah. bucks. Yeah. Get me there. The bonus on that, I think, on top of that, because they wanted the national championship, because Gary was running second, Jimmy Ellis was running third, I believe. I think that's about it. But I was in the way. Yep. So Don calls Pierre, the owner of Canada, says, we got this guy over here, and uh, how much are you going to cost, DJ? He goes, well, right now he's hungry says, do this and this and this. And he came back with the uh, uh, agreement. And like he says, New Orleans, here we come. Yeah. So you just left the Husky rig sitting in the Howard Johnson's hotel? Oh, unfortunately, I was in my van. Oh. It was in my van. And um, uh, so we drove down to New Orleans, never rode the bike before, went out and practiced. I said, my God, this thing is a rocket ship. And I'm going, how can this be? Suspension's not all that good, but it's got to be the fastest 250 I've ever rode. I think to date, if you could ever get your hands on a 74 Can-Am 250, go ride that thing. It's a missile, all, huh? all the gears and needle bearings, every shaft that drives something was on needle bearings. It's a rotary valve. Yeah, and, I remember that. Oh, my God. And that eerie sound, when it's, when it's up there... I mean, it just puts the hair on your back. It stands up. Oh, yeah. With the rotary valve, isn't that making more of a screamer type engine? Well, what's nice, you can make it any engine you want. Uh, okay. Just by cutting the window in the disc that's going around. So it's, believe me, I don't know why they don't make them today. Yeah. The motors are dependable. They're rocket ships. Hmm. A little bit heavier. They had all those needle bearings and everything, but it made everything so nice and free. So I go out and... Um, I'm winning. Never rode this bike, and I'm winning. Things are great. On the far side of the track, they had this giant Daytona bowl, about the width of those 60 feet. Yeah, about 60, 70 feet. Some guy went off the track with two laps to go. I'm winning. I'm going to get my bonus. And then it's San Diego bound, right? <laughs> I'm in the turn. I look, see something on my right, flying in. The guy went off the track, never looked, jumped in the track, and landed on me. 
I go down with two laps to go. I'm picking myself up. Gary goes by. Another rider goes by. It was over. There was no way I could catch them in the two laps. Mm. It was done. Should have won. I should have. And Gary Jones will tell you. He shouldn't have won that. Jeez. So I lost that national championship. That's crazy. Now, that was that a tough loss for you? I mean, that's no way to lose it. Some, somebody else, some uh, squirrel takes it out of your hands. Did you ever find the lapper? You know who it is? No, I don't. But I would like to squeeze this neck a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just a give little it a hug. Just a little. I'm going to hug just your neck. Just a little neck. bear hug. I'm going to bear know? hug your neck. <laughs> <laughs> no, we never found him. Those are tough to swallow, though. They are. It's not mechanical. It wasn't me. And yeah, that was a tough one. But um, still, it was about the fun factor more. Yeah. I was still having fun. 75 came. Is that your next question? Well, that's where we're just going in chronological order. So take us 75. Um, 75. Went to Bull Taco, right? We were of Can-Am. In fact, I think, yeah, we had to do, we had to pick up and motor to Snake River for Evil Knievel's, I think it was a $100,000 purse. And he's going to jump the canyon and all this. We all went. Everybody in the world or in the U.S. We didn't have any Europeans. Pierre, Brad, DeSoto, uh, Joneses, Weinert, you name it. And our best U.S. writers were there. So we get there, and um, I told my guy, my mechanic was Doug Bishop. I said, I want a new cylinder, new piston rings on this bike. Just do that. And that's like, when a diesel's run, not running too good, what do you do? You change the filter and just automatically it's just bitching. Yeah. Well, that thing was screaming. I went to the starting light to do some practice starts, and it's like, I can't get it to hook up in second gear. We're talking 1975, 250. I go, well, this has never been done. Let's try this. I put it in third, and it was like I almost fell off the back seat you know, just it, the bike was ripping out of my hands. Jeez. I'm going, oh, these guys are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I got every hole shot and um, beat Pierre up pretty bad, and we won. And um, I want to say it was ten grand, but I think I read somewhere it was like eighty six hundred that we won for first place in that and and you still have all the uh, invitation and yeah, the tickets and everything the you showed us actual spectator tickets yeah. and all that yeah, hopefully we it, can plug that into the show for you it's neat the, stuff the funny thing was don jones was a pretty sharp man and papa jones at our door in the hotel the next morning at four o'clock get up you little shits get up we gotta go go don we're tired we've just drove from New Orleans and we raced and we're tired. Get up, don't make me say it again. And at that point, you know, you better get moving because yeah. now you're in trouble. So we get in the motorhome, he starts driving. We're back there trying to sleep in the motorhome. We didn't even ask the question. We pull in, I want to say we went to Boise. That would make about two hour drive, I'm, I'm guessing, from... Um, from Snake River, that little town, I can't think of it. So anything, anyway, we're in this town and we're parked in front of the bank. 
and it's the bank that's on the check. So, okay. He goes, I just got a hunch, Tribes, I just got a hunch. So we were, we were the first ones into the bank and all our checks cleared. I heard lackeys cleared, uh, one or two. Then Canelo closed the account. A lot of people did not get paid. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, so sometimes you got to listen to your elders. You think you know it all, and Harry just saved our butts. Was the turnout for the event bad? And that he was kind of going, all right, this guy's not going to make money. No, there was people everywhere. It was it was large. No, Evil Knievel was just that He way. was just shady. He was shady. Yeah. He, yeah. he dealt with a lot of shady people, and there was, like, some stuff that was... So my, my dad's best friend growing up was a cop who lived in Butte, Montana, where Evil grew up. Right. And he tells us stories about he was constantly stealing bikes. He was constantly in trouble. <laughs> they were always after him, and they just couldn't quite, like... Put the two put together. The, put it well. Just have enough evidence or whatever. He would always just kind of elude him. Well, it was like, but he was, was it, a, like El Capone. He was they a knew, bit of an they ass. knew he was a gangster, yeah, yeah. drug lord, and all this. But they he ended would, up getting him on tax evasion, right? Yeah, he <laughs> That's would, how they. He would steal the parking him. meters, the actual whole meter. He'd cut them off and take the meter and you know knock them open for the money in them. And that <laughs> didn't work out so good for Paul Newman in that movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So that year. You stayed on Can-Ams. I was under the impression you went to Bull Taco. I did. Oh, you did? Okay. After that, we went to Bull Tacos. And, um, and what, was the, what was the deal there? You seemed to be pretty happy on that Can-Am. It was a missile. I was. Honestly, I don't know what happened. I think, I think Can-Am pulled out. Mm. Interesting note. What factory has ever come out in the first year and won a national championship one, two, and three? Can That's pretty amazing. Yeah. What First year was that? Who? 75. Oh, uh, Jones and... Jones. They were on Can-Am? I thought... Because in St. Louis, that dropped me in a second. Yeah. Jimmy Ellis was third. And you were all Can-Am, all three of you. All three of us. Jeez. That's impressive. So what happened to them? They just... You know, I... You win a national championship. You got a, a bike that looks like it's going well. Sound well. like they were doing a lot of signing bonuses and all that. Maybe the <laughs> Maybe money ran the out too. bonus <laughs> like sucked them dry or what? You want the behind scenes thought? Yeah. We got the fastest bike. Nice language, Mark. God, we have the fastest 250. The suspension was a big problem. We had Jeff Smith, that was the overseer of Can-Am to the public, the bikes. And then you had another guy in there that was running it. I can't think of his name. But my uncle and Don, we were in the RD department. We decided, you know, we've got, we have the fastest bike. What can we do to make this thing better? Well, we milled off the back of that cylinder and we put a piston port. Uh, we added another carburetor. Mm. So we have dual carburetors, one off the bottom and one right in the back, we went from something like 36 horsepower to 51, right? Jeez. So we get it off the dyno, and we're all like, oh, these guys are so in trouble. Yeah. And um, Don's all excited, and we're all excited, and Gary gets on it and rides it and comes back. He says, Tripes, you're not going to believe it. Don't turn the throttle all the way on like you do. Don't do it. And so I'm going, 
So I get on right and I come back and I'm just smiling going, oh my God, this is cheating. It's so mm-hmm. good. So here comes Jeff Smith. And I'm not a fan of Jeff Smith. I never hold back. I don't quite like him so much. But um, he rides the thing. We're telling him, Jeff, do not turn the throttle wide open first, second, or third. Don't do it. Ease up on it and learn it. Oh, I'm a world champion. I'm, you know, he's playing that part. He gets out there about second and third gear, and it flips over on him. Comes back all skinned up, bones, and makes his report to, uh, oh, his, the guy's name was Robertson. Robertson gets a hold of Pierre and convinces him that the bike is too dangerous for the American public. Huh. All we had to do is spend all the other time making the suspension, suspension work. Right. We were there. I don't know how many thousands of bikes they would have sold if they just would have produced it. I mean, you guys go to the races all these years, and when something's that fast, what do you do? Yeah, if you're not it. a factory rider, you're going to buy that bike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, they were on their way. And that was kind of the end of it. Uh, hmm. Yeah, can was, you imagine taking a bike and just bolting 15 horsepower onto it? I mean, that's, that's unheard of. just, yeah, it's yeah. not, it's hard to describe and ha- uh, hard sometimes. I'm sitting there talking about it, but I'm telling you, we were there, it happened, and hmm. wow, just amazing. But the bottom line is Jeff talked to their guys, Robertson and Robertson then. Uh, basically, put the kibosh on it. Put the the owner of the company says, and I think guess he's thinking about Lear jets and skidoos and all this that he has. Yeah, we're gonna get sued. You know, millions and millions of dollars. Anyway, I, I, that I believe was the end of it. So you went to Bull Taco. I did. I tried Bull Taco for a while. Um, to its credit, I didn't think it was all that good. But my mechanic, John Shoseski, uh really good back then. It made the bike good. It was not too bad. But at that point, I had other problems. I, um, I turned into a jackass. I thought, hey, I'm Marty Tribes, and things changed in my life. I didn't like myself is what I found, hmm. found out. I lost a lot of my close friends and Chip Allen, and Joe Holt and all these folks, and... Um, I quit. I said, uh, you know, it's one of those things in life, you just have to make that decision. And, and I didn't want to be that way no more. I wanted my friends back. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be the cheerful guy that I was. So um, I packed my van up with um, a couple of things here and there. And um, I just left. I didn't say nothing to nobody. I went to uh, Lake Mead. Uh, my sister was dating a guy that ran uh, the Overland uh, Resort up there where the Virgin River comes in in the north. Mm-hmm. And I was a dock master. I made 125 bucks a month, room and board. I was as happy as I could be. Found myself. I was running. I was diving from 30 feet down to 180 feet. EPA came through there and... Um, we had engine blocks. They had engine blocks in there. And they were rusting, so we had to pull them up. So I had a boat with a... P-51. 
people dumped engine blocks in there, you No, no, they used engine blocks for anchor weight oh, okay. in the harbor. Gotcha. The EPA says, hey, you guys, you got to clean this up. So I was diving all the time, and I would hand pull these anchors up all day, you know. And Didn't I was just in great shape, you know, <laughs> just naturally, and I felt good. And it had its... Um, benefits and being the dock master and all that all the showgirls come up there and relax guess what they can't have tan lines so when the boat's coming in you get gas you're going i'm seeing things i'm seeing things so it had a lot of pluses we had a good time and i was happy there and um going in the 77 which i know you're going to go into there's a phone call my but, see, but you took 76 completely off you just we're at the I lake stopped. And... I was done. I had to go find me again. Okay. And like myself again. So that's what I did. So towards the end of the first year, there's another side trip. I'll, I'll, I don't know how much time. I'll go right to it. I'm working away, and um, my nephew comes down and says, Uncle, there's a, a guy on the phone, and he says he's from Harley-Davidson, and he wants you to race for them. I'm thinking, yeah, right, Harley Davis, because <laughs> I've been out of the whole picture for a year. I go, tell that guy, no, don't tell him, just hang up on him. <laughs> this goes on like four times, so I go to my sister, next time, if there is, the next time this guy calls, talk to him, just feel him out. And so he's talking to my sister, and he goes, I'm this and this and that, and I'll take, and she says, I'll take your number, and I'll go talk to Marty. So she comes down and talks to me. I'm working on the dock, and um, she says, I think he's leveled. The area code fits Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, well, maybe something, you know, what's going on? What do I got to lose? I, I'm in good shape. I like myself. Maybe it's time to go back. And uh, so I went up there and called, and, Dick O'Brien, head of all flat track racing and everything, is in charge. And I get him, I go, I thought this was a joke. So pardon me for the hang-ups and all that for my people. <laughs> and uh, so we came to terms over the phone. I said, why not? And so off to the races we go. We're back racing in 77. Okay. Bike was horrible. 250 was, you know, they might have been heavier than the CCs. Is that right? Maybe. Basically, it was an AJS frame, an Italian motor. Uh, when I say frame, the geometries, they just copied that. Okay. Um, mechanics were flat track mechanics. Flat track mechanics and motocross mechanics are way too different mm -hmm. birds. Yeah. So we're breaking a lot, and we had a couple of good showings on the 250. Then Trans Am came, and it's a 500 series. And all the Europeans are there. Did Harley have a 500? No, they stuck a 360 Aramachi motor in it from Italy. Yep. I remember hearing that. Not so good. Not going to compete. <laughs> basically a bored-out Aramachi 250 production motor. And uh, it, it wasn't going good. Especially if you got a heavy bike to begin with. Heavy bike. And at that point, I was 200 pounds. I mean, you can't put your hand around my wrist. You won't go. 
<laughs> I'm very big bone, so I'm heavy naturally, besides eating later years. But the point was, I was 200 pounds. I looked like skin and bones. I was in shape, and the only thing that held me back was the bike. So we're getting to the, and here we are. We're back in St. Louis now, I just realized this. It's the last transom of the year, and I'm going, I'm not ready to leave the sport. And I know I'm not going to get a ride because hmm. I haven't done anything. So um, I had to my mechanic, and um, basically I worked on the bike. Along. I mean, I triple-checked everything. Went out, the bike broke. But I did go from last place. We were always last place, the slowest bike on the track. I went up to, I believe, third in three laps with Roger and everybody there. Broke, push it back. I go, ah. I'm done. I got one motor left. So we work on it, work on it. Go out again, last place. And three laps, I was in the lead, leading. I just, there were, people were in the way, is all I can say. That's how tuned I was. I was serious. Probably the first time ever in my career. Hmm. Buttered right through everybody. Leading, leading, leading. Last lap. All right, we're going to send some good vibes out there, and maybe I'll get another shot in 7-8 for a ride. It has a very long downhill hairpin. It goes back up a hill about 100 yards, and that's the finish line. The Harley throws the chain on the downhill, and I know this already. I'm, I can feel it. I go, okay, okay. We're going to railroad this. <laughs> you know, we're either going to make the turn or we're going to end or something. Make the turn, start going up the hill, and the bike gets just slow enough to jump off it. I'm at a full run with the bike, going up the hill, Roger goes by, uh, ah. somebody else goes by, and somebody else goes by, and I physically and naturally manhandled everything I could do on that bike to make it win, because it wasn't going to happen. You know, uh, you ever been in a position, you guys, in racing where you're at the edge you're past your limit, and you you could die. It, you're 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 doing things you shouldn't yeah, be doing. Yeah. Common sense, even two percent says, back it off. I didn't have that. Yeah, and I did some doubles and things that nobody were doing on that Harley. I mean, I was a man in the mission, and so when I pushed the bike across the finish line. I was done. I was ex exerted. I fell over. Just didn't move. I'm looking around. I look over. And there's Terry Mulligan of Team Honda, the manager standing there. And he's watching all this. So, okay. Get done. I start making phone calls. Kawasaki, Yamaha, Suzuki. No, no, no. We don't want you. And the word was out that Honda would never rehire a rider once you race for them. Mm. That's the golden. So I figured I've got no chance at this. But I made the call, finally the last call. And I said, I'd like to have a meeting with um, Terry Mulligan. 
And um, it must have been something in that last effort. Got up there, and um, I'm trying to think of the president of American Honda and Gardena at the time. Mary Koshisan, I think is his name. Mary Koshisan. He was in on the meeting. So I thought, well, that's got to be important mm. to myself sitting at the table. And um, so we started talking, and <laughs> Marikoshi's like this Japanese guy. He's looking into my eyeballs, <laughs> asking questions, you know, and I'm going, you know, and I'm answering. They go, why do you think we should hire you? And I said, right away, I said, because you haven't got a writer that can be Bob Anna. Nowhere on your team. And I'm the guy that can do it. Well, that's a big statement. You know, he's, he's thinking, what makes you so sure? I go, because I'm telling you, I have never been serious in my life in racing. It's always been the fun factor for the most part. I said, I'm in shape. I've been training. And I will beat Paul Bahanna for you every race. We will win. So he's giving me that I, you know, thing again and, he asked Terry Mulligan at the time, he says, what's your thoughts, Terry? And Terry said, um, you know, I was at the last moto of the last Trans Am. I see them do this incredible thing on this really, really bad bike. Yeah. And he says, if he goes like he did then, I said, he might just do it if he's being serious. And uh, at that point, somewhere I stepped in. I'll tell you how serious I am. You guys don't pay me no salary. You get me a truck, get me a good mechanic, make sure I have bikes, and you fly me back and forth. All I want is bonuses for first place. Everybody else in the team had first, second, and third. I go, I don't even want that. That's what I told them. And that's when it sank into them. Maybe I should give this guy a chance. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't done, because I guess he must have done some research because of my pranks in the uh, previous five rides in what you said, four years? Yeah, five manufacturers in four years. By the way, thank you very much. Yeah, sorry. I Remind was... me to choke you afterwards. <laughs> give, a, give him a little hug of the neck. <laughs> so he goes, okay, Marty, you have to prove it to me. You're going to ride the CR-125. I go, I'm 200 pounds. He goes, I don't care. That's what you're going to do first. So, okay, I agreed to it. Write I, it in what? In the Local nationals? CMCs oh, and okay. Saddleback before the Nationals came and all that. So I was out there and just screamed this poor bike. It must have hated me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we did pretty good. I, I wouldn't say I won. Maybe I did. And then um, after two races, I go, listen, this bike's just too small. Send me a 250. Let's get on with this thing. We need to go. So they did send me down a 250. And I, I mean, instantly at the local, you know, in those days, that was the pro race. Yeah. yeah. Extra race. It was just full of good riders. And I just was killing them big time. And um, they wanted me to still ride the 125. And I, I made that thing blow up in the race so I wouldn't have to ride it again. I never told him that, but I killed him. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I don't know what happened. So this was 78, right, that you went back to 78, right. Okay. And so then um, they weren't completely convinced. 
they had this big gathering, all the European Honda factory riders, all the American riders went to Bishop, California, uh, McCoy's own mammoth. Mm. They had this piece of land and had a track there that they owned in Bishop. So Honda rented this. They still go up there. That track's still there. Really? Yeah, they do testing up there. Yeah. Mm. So we're all there, and I have to ride the 125. Now at that elevation, <laughs> my poor bike is just, it's going, get this big ass off me, you know. <laughs> so I'm screaming, screaming it, and I want to say Tommy Croft, to his credit, looked at Terry and says, Terry, get him off that bike. Get him on the 250. He'll be the fastest guy here. All right, let's try it. And I went out there and proceeded to turn two seconds a lap faster. Lackey, all Palmer, all our guys. And then um, that's when I guess Mulligan was happy, told the president, and we went forward from there. That was the start of it. And you were you were genuinely putting some more work into training and being ready because in the past you yeah. you just really didn't train much, huh? It was just like the fake Robert with the booze, uh, with the fake booze. I was uh, thinking that that could be the last year. I don't know how much longer I could carry on, and I, I just said this year, all the the crap and giggles, they're out the door. I mean, I was uh, I was a really good racquetball player. I was spending two, three hours in racquetball. I'd get out of there, and in the sand pits in Santee in the summer, you're talking 104 degrees in the sand for 40. I'd run the bike until it ran out of gas, and I'd try to run the bike through the sand back to my, um, my truck, fill it full of gas, lay there in the shade in the sand pits, wait about an hour, half hour, 45, and I'd do it again. And in the sand pitch, you don't get any tougher than that. Mm-hmm. And that's why all the guys, the hot zone now is in Florida, is they ride the sand, all those tractor sand. Yeah. And they you got know, the humidity and the everything humidity. to deal with it. So that explains that a lot. But um, I wanted 78. I've never wanted anything. And when I got cheated out of 75 uh, overall national champion, didn't set well. It was sitting there bugging me. Then the year off, you know, finding myself again. So the bottom line is I wanted 78, and I was going to pulverize Anna. And we started off with that. We were. We were going good. And um, if you look at the points and everything, we broke twice. That uh, great bike, unfortunately, broke twice. And that cost us that championship. I would have won in 78. Hmm. Did Hannah end up winning it? Yep. But you were putting it to him speed-wise oh, yes. and all yes. that. Yes. Huh? Hmm. In Michigan, I almost lapped second place. 48-second lead. I could see Hannah in front of me in both motos. Hmm. I mean, everywhere I went, I was on it. We had some battles. Um, I'm sure he won a couple. But we were there, and we were winning. So, even something you wish for, you want so so hard in your life, it's motocross, and you just don't know what's going to happen. No. Especially in that era. You know, mechanicals nowadays mechanicals, are rare, yeah. but back then, 
it, it was pretty much, let's just hope we have a solid day and the we, bike crosses the line. Yeah, both you're right. We were, we were almost there. The dependability with the mm -hmm. motor and everything was all coming in the tack pretty good. But um, we seized up at uh, Southwick, and we seized up. I can't quite remember what where we did, but that put us out of it. You did win uh, that. Were you won the USGP at Unadilla, right? That was <laughs> when you're a kid and you see all your idols and all this, and they're winning GPs. I go, one day I'm going to win a GP. You know, who's not said that, or a national or yeah. something, you're yeah, looking yeah. up. And so uh, when that came around, and I was already in tip-top shape, I was already killing them. I said, today, if this bike doesn't break, no way is anybody going to win but me. And uh, it was tough. The track was very tough. Jimmy Ellis was on fire. Bob had some problems the first one, I think he... Broke a front brake lever on the start and a, and a, and a crash. But uh, that GP was not about the, the Europeans. It was only about Bob Hanna, Jim Ellis, and myself. That was the race. And um, if you look at it, I think I only won by one hundredth of a second or something. You did? It was that close yeah. because it's all time. It's not... If you finish first, it's all by time, GPs. Oh. Or maybe it's changed. I don't know. But the end of the day, when they put the two models together on time, I had oh, one. Oh, that's right. Who told us that? So we interviewed someone, and they slowed, Marty Smith. Marty he slowed Smith, down, he slowed down. And didn't realize that they took that's an average right. time You're to right. cost him a win. He's right. Yeah. So it was that I do way. Remember. Yeah. Is it not yeah, that yeah, way yeah. these days? No, it's not. It's individual motor. Let finish. me tell you what. With think about that in mind, even if you're out front, you still have to you push. You cannot yeah. let up. And we had Mosia, Hans Mosh, the world champion Mosia, and, and a bunch of riders. And um, I remember kept telling myself, "Don't slack up. I'm tired. I'm, yeah. I'm getting wore out." Else and I had a giant battle. And then uh, the first one, the second moto, Hannah was back there, and, and I, I thought, "Okay, Marty." You don't need to fight Bob. You need to finish and finish fast. So why lead? Why be the rabbit? Mm. When Bob got close enough, I just waved him on. And when he, when he did that, I stuck on his fender. And I pushed him so that we would keep going because Bob don't like to get past. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I didn't want to pass him. But, you know, he never got more than five feet away yeah. from me. But you knew he'd push hard all the way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's mad because... He broke a front brake lever in the first moto. On top of it, I don't think he's ever won Unadella. It was one of those like Roger mm. never won Carlsbad. Mm. You know, it's just certain little, places don't work for certain people. Yeah, well, Sugar was like that for me. Most beautiful place, yeah. beautiful racetrack. I'm honestly been a novice. I couldn't make <laughs> nothing ever happen at Washougal. And we're going to take a quick break here, guys. Uh, get a drink of water. This is your TLD timeout. We're going to be right back to finish up with Marty Tribes. <laughs> I want to introduce you guys to PowerDot, a wireless muscle stim unit that is controlled by an app on your phone. It's incredibly simple. This is something I've used for a little over a year now to help with arm pump and nagging injuries, and I've had amazing results with it. 
They recently worked with Adam C. and Cirillo to help rehab his knee after surgery. He had an ACL replaced. And after talking to him, it's something he swears by. He's adamant that this is the one thing that got him back on the bike quicker and got him healthy. So if you have any muscle pain, any nagging injuries, or you want to recover the best way possible, head over to PowerDot.com forward slash Whiskey Throttle for a chance to win a free unit or get 20% off your next purchase. That's PowerDot.com forward slash Whiskey Throttle for 20% off and a chance to win. You can thank me later. Hey, welcome back, everybody. That was your TLD timeout. If you haven't been to Troy the Designs lately, get over there and check it out. They've got a full line of new motocross gear. All the 2020 stuff is out. Vented stuff for the summertime, the SE stuff, the Pro uh, for any other times. They've got adventure gear that's out that's really cool, off-road stuff, mountain bike gear. There's the paint department that's still cranking out amazing stuff over there. So get over to Troy the Designs and check those guys out. Um, That break was brought to you by them. Uh, so while we we're at break, Marty remembered something. He was reminded was of a story <laughs> uh, of why he lost the ride at Can Am and ended up going to Bull Taco. So let's hear this. This I hear this is a good story. Well, who said loss? <laughs> well, you're wrecking the story. All right, go ahead. <laughs> oh, this is not a good one. Not a good one at all. We were in uh, Lake Whitney, Texas, and that was a great track there. And um, it's no longer there, but um, we were there in 75, and just miserable, hot, 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 hot. And when you went down this old farm road, it had a turnoff that led to the track and had a Y, and uh, one section was for spectators, and the other was for pits and uh, spectators. So yeah. racing's over. It's sun starting to drop, and everybody's just in this line at the Y. Yeah. I remember up that to line, get out. yeah. Well, there's a Texas trooper there uh, controlling the traffic at the Y. So where the Y was, the road gone, he was standing back here in the center. You know, okay, you, you guys go, you stop, you guys go. And we finally get out there, and um, we're just bored as hell. And uh, I was reaching down to get something, and I pulled out this hunter pack of black cats. <laughs> Fireworks, firecrackers. I thought, oh, you know, this is, this could be fun, or you know, <laughs> what, what am I going to do with this pack of hundred <laughs> firecrackers? And so, it just call it timing, and nothing goes good for me uh, when I do pranks and stuff. It's always wrong. <clears throat> so we get up there and. Um, my mechanic's driving, we're in a cube van, a box van, and the the van's in the front, and it's a box, and anyway, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and we're getting up to this Y, we're almost there, and I'm thinking, there's that Texas trooper, and he's standing, he's got the full-on yep, cowboy hat, hat yeah. Texas cube, and I thought, I'll just light these, <laughs> throw them over the cab, and get it, you know, just close and let them go off. Be a little, be a little gag, so to speak. <laughs> well, 
you know, one in a hundred thousand chances it happens to me. I light it. Now picture this. His head is where the background of the sun is setting. So there's like the silhouette of him. Got that in your mind? I light this thing over the cab, 20 yards over there, and I go, Phew. there it goes, man. I'm looking out there. It lands on this trooper's hat. No. Not even a second it's there. It starts going off. The silhouette is like (laughs) Fourth of July. And I'm looking, and this Texas trooper, all he did was turn and look my direction. And his teeth were like this. And I knew I was going to be dead. (laughs) (laughs) It was not good. Funny now, but... um, Come on, how do you do that, guys? Throw it 20, 30 yards. Let oh, that on the brim. Yeah, Magic Johnson or something shot, right? That's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> Skyhook. Yeah, yeah. It, it lands on this Texas Trooper's hat. It all fires off. The <laughs> firecracker smoke kind of clears. And you see the smelting <laughs> of the felt. It's like... Oh, oh, no, no, no. So what happened? He, yeah, well, he, he came over, and I thought he was going to forget that he was a cop and just beat the shit out of me. That's what I thought, because he came over. and um, Anyway, I went to jail that night, evening, got out. Don't know what time I got back. Phone call at 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning. Like, who in the hell's calling this early? Ah, oh, Marty. I go, yes, hello? I go, you sound like Lorenz. Yes, Marty, it's Lorenz, owner of Bombardier Can-Am. You are fired. <laughs> I go, yes, you're fired. <laughs> Sweet and simple, just that was it. You're fired. And uh, Have a nice day. No ex- like, just like the troopers had. <laughs> no, no explaining, no... There was nothing to it. He made up his mind. It was over. Anyway, that is why I went to, <laughs> to the Spaniard bike. That had nothing to do with <laughs> testing, salaries, no, yeah. it came down to. I think it was that Can-Am wouldn't handle. <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah. Oh, no, I threw firecrackers <laughs> on a cop's hat. Yeah, that was my luck. <laughs> so that did happen. That's a funny joke gone wrong. It's all right. Yes. Everyone's so sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> One pack of firecrackers yeah, blows I mean, up on your head. Yeah. Those hats are replaceable. Uh, All right. Well, let's get back into 90, 79. So that 78 season, you're back with Honda. You're fighting for that title. Don't quite get it. A couple DNFs. Mechanical DNFs take you out. Yep. I lose the championship. But you win the USGP at Unadilla. That's a nice feather that in your cap. That was the only savior and... As I said earlier, I wanted that. That yeah. as a kid's dream, I wanted that. I mean, I was so serious. I practiced, trained for two weeks prior on top of all my training. I mean, I was, I was going to win that. Yeah. I saw a couple uh, video clips, I think, online somewhere. And some of the track is still the same to this day. Uh, just yes. a few sections, but coming up before what, then, what is a screw you, that hill. Um, and then where the finish line is, the, the gravity cavity. But when they came up that hill before the screw you, 
I couldn't believe how gnarly the bumps were. Yeah. I mean, the guys were getting their feet kicked and they were basically doing a Superman going up the hill because there were bumps up the hill that had to be three feet tall. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Like, yes. Even today, we've got better suspension, but it doesn't get nearly that rough. But they never prepped it. They would leave it after the national yeah. was over. Right. It would grow grass over the current bumps. Yep. And it would just, just so every year. develop. Yeah. Yeah, it was, that track was rough. That was a man's track I back then. I loved it. Um, it, it, was, it was motocross. Yeah. We had off-camera uphills, and the tracks these days are just so bad. I mean, it's, okay, it's here's become, a, It's become like, all right, this is easy to maintain if it's flat. We can just drag a... Yeah. Yeah. Drag take the tractor and drag whatever behind a rip it and then drive the water cart and it's convenient that's what it's come down to I think is yeah. convenience look at a couple of the GPs even today they don't they, they water but they don't uh, uh, except for the start they don't mess with all the bumps yeah. yeah you know Joel told me and I've always believed it and we were having a, a, a talk when we got to spend three days together and that came up and he goes Marty the tracks what happened here in the United States I go what do you mean he goes, they're crap. Yeah. I go, yeah, I agree. He goes, uh, I was explaining to him, um, I explained that I didn't know, but I sure would like to, like in the Unidellis case we're just talking about, that, in my opinion, has gone to crap. They've lost yeah. the S there after uh, gravity cavity. Yeah. You'd make Cork a right. Screw, yeah. And believe me, that took a big challenge just to get through it, yeah. let alone a race. So... Joel's point was, Marty, a track should be so difficult that it's a test against yourself yeah. just to make a lap. Now we throw in all the other racers that you got to race. That's a motocross track. Today I see Flatland and, okay, let's put three cars side by side, bury that. That'll be our big table jump. <laughs> you know, and, and I see it uh, a lot of races here in the south, southwest that it's... Um, we become a flat track with motocross bikes. You know, we've, we're losing what yeah. we learned and it's, going it, away from it. It's true. It's flat track, and then it's got a little supercross influence because they put some jumps. Exactly. And, and some of the problem, just to play devil's advocate, is that we've lost a lot of riding areas. Saddleback, a great example. Yes. Here's this perfect, you know, locale to build a track. It's got elevation change. Well, you, that's shut yeah. down. I mean, you right. know, all these places that were great are shut down. It's so true. we're limited to, okay, where can we build a track? Oh, here, there's this tiny little piece mm -hmm. of flat, crappy land over here that no one will buggy on. That's right. So, and that's getting limited as well. Yeah, unfortunately. See, even the flat, crappy land, you're getting <laughs> bugged at. Because yeah. Just go, going back to uh, Unadilla, you guys, uh, and they made a bronze uh, statue of Bob when he's off the bike flying through yes. the air. We're talking about uh, get gravity cavity. I don't know if you know that. Yep. So... In practice, I'd been there enough, and gravity cavity coming out was, as you said, just, am I going to live through this? Am I going to flip? I was going to imagine on those bikes, you just had to know you're going to bottom it, out. It is bumps all the way. But when you get to Unadil, I don't know about these days, it's like two foot tall straw grass. It's not like that anymore. No, it's they gone. They rip it. They yeah, rip it before you can get there. So They were just talking about that at Unadilla. They were asking, like they asked... Um, uh, Johnson and um, mm. Glover and all them about what it used to be like and they all said grass was this tall yeah. it was up to the handlebars that's right and that's how we started well the plus factor of that is you could make your own lines everybody wore in lines but 
you could make your own wines where nobody would go because, hey, there might be a rock in there or yeah. a bump. And so I was the other guy I'd go, okay, they're all going here. Yeah, it looks fast. We're coming down there. We're going to go there. And you know what? I'm going to go over here. And I'd make a path through there, and, and it would work out. And so in gravity cavity that I'm trying to get to, the Sakamoto, that GP, when Bob was trying to chase me down, and I kept my distance, kept my distance. And when we got out there far enough, I was saying that, okay, got this in the bag, basically, slow it down, let's let Bob catch up, we'll let him go by, get waving by, go by, and I'll stick to him. Well, before that happened, and talking years later with Bob, he says, he couldn't figure out where I was going. He couldn't figure out where could I make time and everything he tried, nothing worked. So before gravity uh, cavity or screw you, whatever they call it, it used to be flat. But now I understand they have a tabletop there on that little stretch of straightaway before you yep. turn left and go down, yep. right? Yep. That's the gravity cavity. Screw you <coughs> was basically down that steep hill, then you would turn and then come oh, straight back up. Oh, one of the nicest pieces of racetrack in the States. But we just not allowed, we're not allowed to call it screw you. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the wall now. The wall. It's politically correct. Hey, we all got number one uh, first places for finishing that day, you know. Yes. Sorry. Um, So Bob said when he'd come out of that little cork and get on that straight, I'd be diving in there. And as he was going down the straight, he was trying to look up ahead to see where I was going on gravity cavity. Well, I had made a line all the way to the left. And it was bumpy or else, but there was one bump at the bottom that you could hit about three or four feet from the bottom. And if you can imagine, see if I get my hands right, that's the face of gravity cavity going out. And this bump is like this. And I got to where I came down, I'd spear in there and hit that hard. Pre-jump. And I'd go with the front wheel just going inches away from the bumps, going elevator. And I just land way out there. It was so smooth and nice. Bob finally catches that. He says, no, I got him. I see that one at least. He didn't get over far enough. And, um, and is that where he, he hit and it threw off. him off the bike and Oh, that's the flying W that's video? That's the flying ah. W that ended up. <laughs> that's a classic that's photo. That's exactly why. They still why have that. it out there. There's a yeah. statue yeah. out there of Bob, and it's that one. There. That's that's why that happened. He was trying to chase me down, and he was trying to follow my lines, and uh, he thought he uh-huh. had me. That's hilarious. <laughs> and that's I made him more famous than he was <laughs> because of that stupid. <laughs> that's something about guys that are good at Unadilla, and a lot of GP riders are good. It's like you'll see them doubling stuff into turns yeah. or using bumps uh, to either double other bumps or double into turns or trying just to, Trying to make a rough track yeah, smoother yeah. Right. and floating around rather than, than pounding everything. Yeah. So, all right, so that year's over. You stay with Honda again for the following season? I did. And as much as I wanted to make myself go out there and win again, it just wasn't there. Just the fire wasn't there. Fire was gone. Go to Daytona, I won prior year, and I'm, I'm in the lead. I'm doing good, and I'm asking myself, why am I out here during the race, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm hitting that bump and this bump, and Bob's barking up my butt, and, and Weinert's coming after Hannah. And I just 
You ever just throw a race away? You ever have that happen? You just you lost it so much in your mind, your timing goes away. Nothing's working. I think a few. I've had that a few times. I think. Yeah, that's the best way I can explain. It. I just. Yeah. I was like, "What am I doing?" It was con- That was really. Everyone has. Every rider has their moment, but every rider's moment or that moment how it happens, I think, is different for every guy. Some people, it was a bad crash. Some people, it was, I didn't have a good ride and I wasn't going to ride on a privateer team. I mean, I remember Kevin Wyndham said he was at the race and the guys were quadding into a corner. He said, I just realized I was too scared to do it and I knew I was done. So he made it like during a night event, just decided I'm done. And, you know, like, like you were saying, mid-moto, it was almost like you question yourself. Everyone's had that, that moment. It's just a little right. bit different for each person, I think. Yep. And I was slowing up, making big mistakes, thinking about all these other things and besides why I was out there. And yeah. Anyway, I gave that race away, and um, I thought at the end of the year that would be 79. You know, I'd give it one more chance and, and um, try to stay on track and do a, a good job. And um, I was with Yamaha in 80, and the bikes were good. Actually, I had good bikes, but I never got back to that 100%. Hmm. What was your best year? You think that season with Honda there, 78? <coughs> was that at oh, your... Oh, for, for results and all that, and well, just you should have won, yeah, 78. Best, 78. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted 78. I was serious. Yeah. Got to remember, I was never serious. I was enjoying what I was doing. Maybe too young and stupid from a small town to realize that it meant a hell of a lot more than what I was given it. And I still accomplished a lot of things. But uh, for me, it was more fun. And, um, and then um, the professionalism, after a while, starts jumping in there. And it starts taking you down. It, it really does become a job. You know, you realize it finally hits you. Hey, we're... We're not at Saddleback or Carlsbad yeah. or we're not with friends out practicing somewhere. And um, I just didn't take it serious enough. Mm-hmm. It's about as good as I can explain it, I think. Yeah. And then sounds like you said, too, you just you lost that fire. I did. Then I made my biggest mistake, and it's the hardest one for a professional is either even if you know you're doing bad or you're still doing good, there's a point where you got to say enough's enough or I've made it through so many years. I mean, I've made it from 61 through 81. No, not 61, Marty. 69, 68 through 81. Took three years off, came back with the uh, Rose Bowl in 85. And that was a no-no, but getting back to 80... When Yamaha didn't give me a ride back, and I finished third at the last San Diego Supercross, um, I should have just walked away. You know, I had a house, had a bunch of toys, and um, something says don't quit. And you said, well, I can make a comeback, because I don't know how many guys have made a comeback of just quitting. I don't know what this is a record or if you know what I mean. I don't know. And come back and actually win. Well, I was going to say, there's been some comebacks, but they usually don't ever win. It's usually injuries, though, right? 
It depends. I mean, McGrath said he was retired and then came back and raced for a while again, but there again, yeah, he, he was never... Anything. Wyndham was yeah. from his injury, but that was a year and a half off. Yep. Injuries. Yeah. Okay. But, um... I was promised a uh, Husky contacted me and uh, at that point we were better so I thought I had a chance in Europe let's go give it one more year give it all out and do the GPs let me tell you folks in window uh, not window Villapoto learned the hard way and Lackey took 10 years before he actually won a world championship the food's different the language is different the money's different crossing Culture. borders is a major ordeal everything is hard to do mm-hmm. it's not like here you jump on you know say the 15 and go i'm gonna go to corona you go up to 15 you hit the 91 you get off you're there jeez man over there you're going through cobbled stone roads and everything is a major ordeal and uh None of your friends are there. Nobody really to look at unless you're married or, or whatever. But um, it just, um, it's very d- difficult. And what made it worse is uh, in talking of Husky, they were working on their 500. And um, nobody knew about it. So I was promised this new factory 500 Husqvarna. I'm thinking, you know what? That sounds appealing. Yeah. Um, but to do it, I had to sell my house. I had to sell my stuff to just do it. And I thought that'd be enough motivation, you know, go out and win this thing and make your money again and, you know, get yourself a home and then call it quits. That wasn't too good at thinking, real stupid. Hmm. And uh, got there three weeks before uh, Zittendorf, Austria. And... Um, <laughs> So go to Husky, my mechanic, Stefan Bjorn, really good mechanic. I could see something on his face like, eh, I couldn't quite grasp it, and then they brought up the bike. And I'm looking, I'm going, that looks like a 500 jug on a 430 cylinder bike, production bike. All the suspension, the forks were the same. Uh, Husky forks are like spaghetti mm. back in those days. They're just... No brakes, no nothing. Transmissions came out of gear. It was horrible. So, okay, let's go out and ride this thing. I rode two laps. I brought it back. I said, listen, your timing's off. you got too much compression. They had this thing's pinging. I could blow it up in one minute. Kind of back to the Japanese days, it was Swedish power, Swedish thinking we know better we've been in business since the early days you know and um that bike was nowhere near the clutch was the same clutch so that thing i could make it slip so they made all these adjustments and then um went back out i said it's still pinging it's not it's not the main jet it's it's the they didn't want to hear it hmm. stefan beyond was looking he goes pull me say says you know what you're talking about don't you I go, yeah, I've been doing this since I was a kid. I had to learn the hard way. I had to learn everything and feel and hear what the bike's doing. He goes, I think you're right, Marty, but we can't say nothing to them. I go, yeah, I'm stuck here, and I got to uh, be here six months or three months, whatever it was, before we came back to the States. 
So over the next week, we tested, and bottom line is I finally got kind of fed up. I said, look, are you telling me this is the best, the best this bike will ever be? And they said, yes. Our riders ride it, and they love it. It's good. Mm-hmm. I go, do they win GPs? They go, well, a couple of them have. I go, well, they're not going to win GPs on this bike. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. That always, that always sets well when you yeah. tell the engineers no one will ever win on this bike. The, tri- the truth always hurts. <laughs> and, um, you know, well, come on, you got $200,000 works, Hondas and all this, you know, stuff that's just way better. You got to remember, this is 81. So, this is Honda's prime time. Honda's coming on strong. So yeah, Suzuki's 82's. got big bikes, 500, I think 82, 83, maybe 81. Brad was on. and So long story short, they didn't, thought I was full of crap, said, I'm going to prove it to you guys. I'm going to ride this bike wide open for one lap. They had a sand pit area there. It didn't go half lap. It just seized up. Oh, it must be a faulty cylinder, rod, or something. They come back, and they split all the case, and they do all this stuff right at the track. They're pretty efficient, and uh, it's done in about an hour, hour and a half. I go, it's going to happen again. They said, no, it won't happen this time. New rod, new piston, everything's good to go, Marty. Half a lap blew up. So we have one week of travel (laughs) to drive the transporter, my mechanic. I lived in the van. That's all the sacrifices I made to go. And uh, we have two days before we leave. The bike's junk. We go back to the factory. They're having a discussion. Come out and they said, well, uh, there's nothing we can do about this bike. So you're going to ride a production 430 Husky. And that was, it was like, you know, just cut my hand off. Mm. It's over. So already I was defeated. And um, so I was stuck there and I said, all right. So we went and... Um, Let's make sure my check clears. <laughs> yeah. It was um, not good. Went there, practiced in Zittendorf. It's got the biggest hills you've ever seen. I mean, you have to have brakes. It's bumpy like Unadilla, oh. but more so. And they don't groom the track. It's been there since the late 50s, if mm-hmm. you kind of get my idea and view. So I go out there and practice, and horrible. Just horrible. So Brad was on Suzuki. I went to Brad. I go, Brad, I'm in trouble. He goes, what's wrong? I go, these forks, I can't, I can't even keep it in a line. It doesn't stop. There's no brakes. And I go, Brad, any chance that you can get a KY, uh, KYB front end off one of these works bikes? He goes, I don't know. Let me talk to them. <laughs> so Brad talks to me, comes over to the pit, and he says, no, it's not going to happen. And Bjorn, my mechanic's going, Marty, you can't do that. I go, we got to do something. Yeah. Because we're, we're last. You know, we're 10th, 20th back. It's just not going to happen. And so um, Brad came back by. He goes, is it really that bad? I go, Brad, it's unbelievable. 
and these guys don't want to listen. He goes, okay. So when it got dark in the GPs, all the mechanics like to drink it up a little bit and mm-hmm. they get around there blowing up these nitrogen balloons and they're having fun, right? Mm-hmm. Before the race. Brad comes in the dark. He's got a whole front wheel with disc brakes. Or no, not disc brakes. Uh, a, a drum hub, but they stop. And he gave me the triple trees and everything. And he goes, you don't know where you got that. <laughs> so <laughs> I wake up my mechanic. I go, Stefan, we have work to do. And he's going, oh, Marty, I do this, I lose my job. I go, if you don't lose it, do it, we go home. <laughs> he says, okay, I, I believe you, Marty. Bolted it right up. Everything was perfect. Went out for uh, time trials. He had a little bit of practice. And then they... And then... Uh, they, they put the flag on the board, and you've got, uh, I think, three or four laps. And you've got to go as fast as you can, even in traffic, because there's other bikes out there. doesn't matter who's in the way. That's how you get your starting time. And I thought to myself, one lap, fill it up. Oh, the thing stops. I can keep it in this line. And the back end's doing this and that. I go, I'm strong enough. I'll keep that thing in, yeah. in line. Went one more lap, a little bit quicker. I said, okay, this is it. And I saw a pit, and I just, I, I put it in that stupid Marty mode or whatever mode where he shouldn't be, putting that much trust in the bike. And I, I ripped it, man. I ripped it hard. That poor 430 was screaming like that 125 <laughs> I had. And um, <laughs> I was literally um, stopping and using the suspension of the forks over the rear end to get through the track. I don't know if that makes any sense. Sometimes you steer the back with the rear end through turns. Yeah. I was doing everything on the front half of the bike to make it go fast because now I had suspension that worked. Mm. It wasn't like spaghetti, and the thing stopped. So damn if I didn't get through that, and we're waiting for the results. Brad Lackey, first fastest time. Marty Tripes, second fastest time. And when that was announced, here comes Honda, here comes all the engineers, because they know I'm on a stock 430, and they're taking pictures. Then I see the Suzuki guys walk up, Suzuki. I'm going, oh, no, no, no. They're going to recognize something. (laughs) That looks familiar. And they're all pointing and this and that. But I think people were more, uh, most of them were just, it was a production bike. And I just rolled the crap out faster than it's ever going to go in its life. And I lived, you know. (laughs) Lived to tell about it. To tell about it. That's the best part. That was the best part. And um, we really just, didn't have the power. No rear. Br- I remember in Sweden at the Grand Prix, they had a fifth gear, uh, giant tabletop, and it was bumpy going up to it. And I remember, ten yards from leaving in fifth gear, it comes out of gear. I'm going, hang, ging, 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 ging. The dead sail. You know, from here to wherever it was forever. And, and it's I, in slow motion in your head at this point, You know how too. that goes? You're in slow motion. 
I'm looking at my angle. I'm going, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And then I just said to myself, you are not going down like this, Tripes. And I'm strong, very strong. And I just chirped and did everything I had and pulled the front enough that it went and that, that and I went back to my mechanic and he's, he was standing and he watched that he goes I'm surprised you're not dead I go me too I go let's just get through the year I get back home I'm calling it quits it's time hmm. you know it's just that's time. too bad did you always want to do a stint in Europe doing GPs was that something you'd always kind of wanted to do I yeah because in our days this, these newer generations, they don't, um, the Europeans were faster than us, yeah. right? Then we caught them, and we were fastest. So the newer generation, I don't think they conceive that as well. Well, it's coming around. I mean, they've been pretty much kicking our ass outdoors. Yeah, it, it has switched around, hasn't it? So maybe that'll get the spirit of, I'm a giant patriot of being American. I love American. I love American people, and kind of like I was saying, I think we fell asleep when um, AMA took away the works, uh, bikes, big, uh, just stop creating and working and doing things. It changed things for sure. It's like these kids on the cell phones and computers. <laughs> the bikes are so expensive, as we know, and this new wave of generation kids, they're not even interested in bikes. Wow. One, they can't afford it. Yeah. But you know how it goes, but yeah, that's what it is. So, but I did, would like to ride a couple of GPs. But I think I'd, in my mind, I was uh, fairly happy because I was the first. Um, I won my 250 GP in Unadilla. Interesting point about this. San Diego, Marty Smith, Marty Motes, Marty Tripes. Marty Smith wins the first 125 Grand Prix. Marty Trifes wins the first 250 Grand Prix ever in America. Marty Moltz pulls off the first 500 Grand Prix hmm. Carlsbad. All San Diego riders. All Martys. And three cool, Martys. Eh? Yeah. Is that weird? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's cool. It's pretty cool, I think, actually. So. Were you buddies with Moats and Tripes? Did you grow well, up kind of riding with those guys? Unbelievable stories. Actually, Marty walked from Claremont, where he lived. Claremont up in... Claremont uh, and like San Diego. Oh, all right. Gotcha. And uh, he walked all the way to Santee. We had a small bike shop, and he walked on our door. We sold him his first motorcycle. Smith or Moats? Moats. Okay. And then when I was riding 71 with Rick and Matisse, we went back to... Um, 71 or 70. We went back to the Florida series. And, oh, God, that's a whole story itself. Um, but, yeah, I, he got his first bike from us. Huh. And you guys all kind of grew up riding together? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Well, not as much together riding, even though we're all close. And a lot of times we went to the same tracks, but we wouldn't call, hey, I'll meet you. At, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, it that, just that happened. Kinda, yeah, it just kind of happened. Hmm. Hmm. Um, all right, so... You have any? You you had eleven national wins. If I've got that correctly, that's what the records books show. Okay. Anyway. Um, two Super Bowl motocross wins. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 01. 
Um, what, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? I got a lot of uh, not proud of. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all do. We all do. Yeah. But not everyone can say they've won 11 <laughs> nationals, a USGP. Uh, you know, it's a, a tough sport. And um, a lot comes with that. And proudest moment, I think I was just too young when I won the Super Bowl. As we talked about what impressions that made on everybody throughout the years. Uh, the uh, the uh, 250 Grand Prix that as a kid, as in riding the CT90 days, I'd like to win a Grand Prix one day. You know, the big wish. It's kind of that, that bucket list thing you had. I think um, standing there with uh, Alice and Hannah and me being the victor, that we just crushed the Europeans. It swung that pendulum. I, yes, again. And um, right now, to my mind, I, I guess that would be my proudest moment. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just about um, me winning. America won. Yeah. That's how I look at a lot of things. I like when American wins. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And that probably didn't sit real well with the European guys, not one of them on the podium. But, 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 but that's never changed. I remember when I was living in Europe doing the Grand Prix when Motocross the Nations came around, it was just like the Europeans just want, it was like, I don't care who wins, like if we're French, if France do, doesn't win, anybody but the US is kind of the mindset because they had won through but, the but 80s back at and this the 90s. Time, that, that wasn't really happening yet. This no, was prior to all that. So but that's I, why he's saying he was proud that the yeah. Americans had now done this and surpassed the you GP know, guys and they occupied the podium. Yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong, but when I see when we had pulled and won, what, 14 straight uh, yeah. trophy donations and all this, I don't know if it's just me, folks, so don't take this wrong. It's just my opinion, what I see through my eyes. And I don't see the proudness or wanting to be there to represent and win. That's the race where we're supposed to come together. Yeah, you're saying... All the battles between you and me or whoever is out the door. We're going to go there and kick these guys' ass. Yeah. That's what we're here to do. That's definitely changed over the years. I don't see that in the eyes. I don't see it in the racing. And I think that was kind of the beginning of the pendulum swaying to Europe. Am I wrong? I, I, I agree. I think there's a few things. I think another thing is, and, and I was just complaining about this, they're grooming the outdoor national tracks like half the track gets graded before the first motor and the guys are just sitting there wide open. It, it's, it's, it scrambles. It's, yeah, it's not technical. It's not racing. And I think that's hurting um, the US-based riders. And I think the whole thing, getting back to the, the motocross of nations, it really feels like, for me, Red Bud last year helped people realize what it means because I can't tell you how many American fans that have been to many nationals or supercrosses that were there at Red Bud and were like, whoa, how about the crowd? How about the, you know, the patriotism and you know, the people from all around the world? And you could tell people got that feeling like there's something special about this event. And I just think you know, they, had, they had donations at uh, uh, Unadilla and everyone talks about that. 
Um, you know, they had Bud's Creek a few years ago, but America hasn't had too many of these events that make you go, yeah, you know, I'm proud to be an American. I'm going to root for my, you know, we just haven't had that. It's always right. been in Europe and in France and Spain and Italy and England. They're very patriotic and they're, I mean, they live for these events. Mm-hmm. And I think that, what Marty is saying, I agree. It's, it hasn't, it's sort of fizzled out. And instead of being, I'm going to go represent my country, it's like, well, we've got a testing schedule. We've got Monster Cup coming up. Uh, you've got to do yeah. the test track on Tuesday morning and uh, ride the new bike. You know, well, it's a whole mindset. And yeah. it's like, this nations has just become. Yeah, but it, it, there, a there's a lot of factors, though, the, when they change sort of the timing of it. Because it used to be right after our nationals. You had two weeks, which was enough time to to test for fuel or exhaust or whatever changes you need to make, and then you went. You were still in top form. Now it's six weeks after our last national. So you're asking guys to to forgo any break that they would get, keep on your training program for another five weeks, you know? You know what? When everyone else is switching to Supercross, and we said, it's a double-edged sword. You're losing testing time for the next season. You're losing whatever break you'd get that you need. And you're going over here to, you know, yeah. a but track fact, that's going to be nothing like we run. Yeah. I think, to your point, we're over-grooming, over-watering. All yes. of our tracks are kind of the same They have here. become. And so, with good intentions, but I just don't think it's turning out right. I, we, but what I'm saying is, where I do agree with Marty, is the mindset has changed. Like, people are trying to dodge getting out of, yeah. going yes. across the nations, where 10, 15, 20 years ago... Whether you wanted to go or not, like if you got that call, it was it's an like, honor I'm going, yeah. we're doing right. it. So that has changed. And I think we could debate there's a million reasons why. And I think there's a few things that could make it easier, more convenient, that would start that trend back to people being really involved and potentially yeah. having fans travel the world to go to the Motocross of Nations year after year. And if you talk to guys who go with the U.S. team every year, uh, and I won't throw any names, but there's a guy who's gone for the last 15 years. And he says that he's watched this transition of it going from a really, like you said, all the guys come together. We have a, a common goal now. We're not racing each other. We're right. teammates. And, and the factories and, and too. They, factories too. And we, we're going to do this together and let's all, we're going to eat dinners together. We're going to walk the track together. Uh, we had Bailey talking about that, how it was just such an, a, a tight team. Yeah, it was And a over team. time now, you watch them. If, if Mitch's guys are, he's with the Cowie truck over here it's and like the three, guys three over individuals there. they're not a team lining up to race yeah. as right. a team exactly it's not a team if you watch that um last one it was a mutter on tv you'd have to be an idiot not to feel the other country's presence in this in the crowd how they were oh, yeah. there and forced and cheering on it, you, you just feel it yeah, yeah. you know and that's what you were talking about. Yeah. It has they could have been, been 100 Dutchmen, but you would hear them all day, I've been to a lot night. of races. I've been to a lot of races since 1980, 78, or whatever. And that was my first trophy to Nations. And I've never felt anything like that a race before. Yeah. And, I've, and I've seen it, I've seen it compl- like two notches above that. And, and I was European just like, places. it just, fe- it, like I, you can't explain it. It actually felt different. Yeah. It's like the makes you want to go get your star, stars and stripes <laughs> undies and shirt and jacket. <laughs> oh, and I had it. Hat, don't worry, shoes, I was there with it. There, your backpack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I look like Uncle Sam. Don't worry about <laughs> it. It's like watching a Formula <laughs> One race in Italy and the Ferrari wins. Yeah, yeah. Oh they my go God, nuts. the whole country's drunk. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they're out of wine all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Shortage of wine. Yeah. 
Marty, you got any, any regrets? Anything you'd do different if you could go back and do it over? Oh, yes. You know, the spending the money and changing the rides. If I could have just maybe... Um, I'm trying to see how this would make better sense. If I could have started in 78, 81, where not only did we have to race, but we had to develop the bikes. You know, our, our generation did a crap load for motocross bikes in this country, the world. We developed, Americans developing with the Japanese. And look at everything. It's gotten better, 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 better. Yeah. Now the two-strokes, they're great machine. Awesome machine. But uh, I think if they spent as much money as they have on that four-stroke and put it in the two-strokes, we could maybe get a cheaper bike. And who knows where the two-stroke would have been by now. Yeah. It's way lighter. It's way skinnier. And for me, personally, again, don't hate me for this. It's just my opinion. I love four-strokes. But at the end of the day at a four-stroke race, to me, they all sound like lawnmowers with broken pipes. That's what they sound like. You're not far off. (laughs) I said, I don't think you're far off. I kind of agree with you on that one. But you put a two-stroke out there. Yeah. Maybe the guy's poured or what, but everyone has their own song. And you could be sitting in the back of your truck laying down, and a two-stroke would go by like maybe an 87 CR500 and yeah. just... Yeah, it had a distinct you go, sound. You get up, and you, you want to see what that is. It's two-strokes do that. Hey, man, blends all. Let's get high on the side <laughs> of the track when this guy comes by. But, you know, you don't get the smells. Yeah. You don't get that energy... And sound the two strokes put out. Just my opinion. I'm way generations before the four stroke, so it might be biased, but I've gone to four stroke races. I just think they have more personality. Yeah. Well, it's funny when when I first when I left South Africa and went to the GPs, that was one of the things I remember was just cruising the pits, and then you know I remember you know Coyote was on the factory Husky, and I mean I used to think Huskies they're a lot of crap like. <laughs> and they had to fire his bike up. And I'm like, I think the only thing that actually was made by Husky was that sticker. Because this thing was just like all hand built. But they would fire it up and you were like, that's yeah. a Husky. Yeah. I'm like, it's nothing like the production bike. Then you'd take a few steps that way and there would be TM. And their bikes would just have a different ring but barking. Yeah. And then there was KTM. And it was, it was just incredible with all these handmade bikes that they all, as Marty said, sang their own song. And they all had a... And sometimes you would just sit in your, your camper, as they call it, there, and you would listen. You're like, no, nope, that, that, that's a TM. No, that's a Husky. That's, that's a Honda. Yeah, you could call it out. Now, uh, you know, they, like, they do generally sound pretty much the same. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's not a great sound. Um, so what did you do after you retired then? What kind oh, of... Oh, jeez. Uh, you got into paintball. You were running a mushroom. <laughs> uh, I kind of did everything. I was running JT Retail Store for... A couple years, paintball just started in the country. Well, actually, we invented it in this country. Go America. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, there was a company called Nielsen Paint Company in Michigan. And uh, 
all this lumber that we have for construction and everything, that has to be hand-picked out of the forest. Some of that lumber is not ready to be chopped down. So this guy would go through the forest, used to hand paint like a blue or red mark, would tell him which ones to chop down when the guys came through with the axes and power saws. And you didn't want to cut down the ones that weren't ready. So it was a really demanding labor work, if you can imagine. Walking through the forest. Walking through the oh, forest yeah. at 8,000 feet or 6,000 and up sheer cliffs and whatnot. But um, so this guy developed this gun that was air-powered with this 12-gram CO2 cartridge. And they developed a, a ball, 68-caliber ball, that had paint in it. So this guy could then, like, sit 20 yards or 30 yards and bam, shoot it and shoot the tree and it would speed up time. The cattle industry got a hold of that. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of cattle and they got to go through there and weave that out. Well, here you had cowboys with pistols, paintball pistols, and they're shooting the cattle, marking them for slaughter. Well, one thing and up to another, Cowboy shot the other cowboy. The war was on. Paintball started. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. That's how it happened. So, JT had goggles, motocross goggles. And John thought, well, I'll just put an ad in one of their mag the magazine, the only magazine. And darn, and he camouflaged the strap, camouflaged the frame, you forget what I mean. And next day he's getting orders. I used to shoot a lot of guns. That was my uh, free time. No matter what, between nationals, of all the work, one day I went shotgun shooting, a rifle or a pistol. That's what I did. Also, black cats. Those are another big one. Well, those black caps, <laughs> they get you in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to guns. They're so, safe. <laughs> nobody at JT knew nothing about guns, and I did. He called me up. He said, it's like the third time I've worked on Hey, Marty, you want to come back to work? I go, what's going on, John? He goes, I got this thing going on with paintball. I'm getting orders. I don't know nothing about it. I don't know the game. He says, I don't want to get in a lawsuit. So do you want to come down and talk to me? So I did. And I grabbed some goggles and went to my local paintball field in San Diego, just starting out, and um, go on the field. And I stick my head out behind this rock to see my opponents. because so it's like a football field. The flags uh, yeah. is at each end, and you got to go through their guys to get their flag and bring it back to yours. Yeah. And then the process, the elimination of uh, your components add points and points for the flag. But um, stuck my head out, and I see a guy looking at me with the the barrel <laughs> pointing at me, and I see the I see this red dot leave the barrel. I'm going, <laughs> and I shove back, and I hear this. Oh, man, that sounded pretty fast. <laughs> so the Chekamex goes, I wonder if these goggles are safe. So during the game right there at that moment, I go, I push on my lens. It's like a 10,000th thick lens, maybe. And it goes to my eye. I go, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm dead. I put my hands up. I walk off the field. I go, John, you do not want to sell this goggle on this. Well, they were using sunglasses, Uvix goggle. Uh, for welding safety, yeah. that, that thing. And sure enough, the same time, uh, it just started in Dallas, and there was an or organized game there. 
And a Texas trooper, again, back to Texas trooper, he was playing. Well, this guy thought he could give pain in the game because you get a little pain, but nothing, the ball breaks on you. He froze his paintballs overnight. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's what you That feel thing it. came out, and I did all this testing, and um, unfortunately shot this trooper in the jugular, killed him instantly. Ruptured, shattered it, just killed him. So straight away, the government's got their hands in there, and, you know, that's not good. So I'm blasting and prototyping and testing and get it to where it's safe, get it going. And um, I actually, I don't hold them personally, but I set and made the standards for a paintball worldwide. And um, the minimum, thick, minimum thickness of a lens today is now 60 thousandths, but everybody's gone to 80. The lens retention system I created, that's one of my ANSI's. That's not mine that I created. First ear, ear and throat and face protection I created. And probably the biggest one that everybody will know out there is worldwide the paint limit of the paintball to test your gun so that it's safe on the field. Yeah. You go over a chronograph, it's set at 300 feet per second. That's because of me. So that, I, that's the standard. I made now. a lot of standards. I made the first hopper that held more than this one stick of 10 uh, paintballs and a lot more. I was in paintball for 20 years, 10 with JT. I, I didn't know all this. I'm basically one of the forefathers of paintball. And then um, the next 10 years with Scott, USA mm. got involved. Um, we basically, well, there was no other super crosses or super bowls. I won those two, so, and then I got into race cars between all this, and I won the championship, world championship with Mickey Thompson in 85 in class one cars. Short course, unlimited, horsepower, that. I got Supercross, and I got three years world champion with the Navarones, Team Navarone out of here in California. Hmm. I took... Like well, the, were you, was that during like the Ultracross series? That's like that's 89... Uh, 9087. And then okay. uh, Mickey Thompson was in 85. Okay. We did um, Orange County Fairgrounds and we did the one where they do the ribbon section. I don't think it's there no more. Um, oh, Pomona Speedway? Pomona Speedway. Yeah. We were there, Riverside, and those tracks. Yeah. So I managed to get my sponsor, had sponsored Rick Mears, Roger Mears, and all these great guys. And um, from breaks and stuff, he never got a championship. So I was able to give that to him cool. in 85. But based on three champions, I think. I don't know who else can say Pretty that. diverse. Yeah, so then I got to cooking. I'm an excellent cook. From cooking at the races and people come, what are you cooking, Marty? And I'd you know, throw something John or I'd feed him. And so I got a catering business I still do today. In fact, we're going to do Mr. Langston's uh, vintage show Oh, here. the vintage event. Oh, yep, cool. We'll be there. We're doing a show that weekend. Oh, I awesome. Think. I can throw you a rib. I love it. Throw <laughs> it at us. Sure. <laughs> uh, so we did all that. Um, came back. What did I do after that? Oh, I got in the mushrooms. I... Been uh, told by Kraft Not foods. magic mushrooms. We're talking like actual gourmet mushrooms. Did I say we did? 
<laughs> I'm just trying to clear it up. Yes. I uh, became quite the mushroom cooker. And it all started with uh, just steaks. You know, I have mushrooms on your steaks. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God, these things could be so much... <clears throat> excuse me. These things could taste so much better. So I dabbled in that. And I made a steak um, mushroom. And I made a roasted garlic mushroom that kind of went with salads and everything else. And next thing you know, I've got 50, um, 50 53 restaurants in San Diego and another 40 to 50 uh, street fairs. What do you call those? Every town has a market, farmer's yep. market. Oh, yep. farmer's yep. market, yeah. And they're going, I was running wide open. Well, our mushroom farm burned down in California. Oh. And mushrooms went like triple the cost because they're all imported back from PA. Mm. And um, anyway, so it wiped out my price. It wiped everything out. I was done. Uh, went back into, um, started a shop, catering, and this and that. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to make a 100cc factory work series. Like back in the old days when we had so many entries, two and 369 and 70. And um, that has just went through the rough. Crazy. Dubok, Guy Cooper, Trampas Parker, Jim Gibson, Scott Burnworth, um, Trampas Parker, uh, Sean Coyer. Kalos, you said. Kalos, and then there's a Coyer kid that's really fast out here. And it's hard to believe that they go that fast. Um, They didn't have a shutoff, I think. (laughs) They they actually upshift into the turns. At the finish line at uh, Glen Helen, you go through it, and you start back up the big straight. When they land, they never shut off. They're flat out. And so we thought, let's put the clock on these guys. And we put it on Dubok and uh, Cooper. And they bo- uh, Cooper and Trampas Parker at Diamond Downs, our biggest vintage event in the year, they rode their 250s and 500s. On the 100, they turn an average of 1.5 to 2 seconds faster on the 100. Hmm. Think about that. That's impressive. It's impressive. That's not using the brakes much. No, and anything's allowed. You want to put a turbocharger on there? Whatever your mind can do, it just can't be water-cooled, and it can't be past an 83 motor unless you make your own motor. And we got carbon fiber of this. We got suspension mods, and it's a works class. You show up, and these are works hundreds, and everybody laughs until they see them, and they're like, that's the best racing I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. The riders come off, they're like, Oh, my God, that's tougher than Nationals. I mean, they're spent. They're going, that's the most exciting thing. I was telling them earlier, there was a, a media group doing an interview of Tubac, and they're at his place, and he has this herd of Yamahas. He's a Yamaha guy, and they're going through 490s, 250s, this, this, four-stroke. And they come across the 100, and they point, and they all laughed. They go, Doug, what's the deal with the 100? And he goes, that's the cream of the crop of my lot. That's the funnest I ever have in racing. Most strenuous, most just... Yeah, you have to work it. You got to work it. You have you to be shift correctly. Mm. You got to... Everything counts. They're bumblebees. You miss a shift on a straightaway, three guys just go, boom, boom, boom. It, it's pretty impressive. And we're, we're going to have that here later this year. So I developed that. Uh, I had some health issues. 
we were up to 60 like within three years out here and it just grew like nuts. Quit going on the races, my guys quit going on the races. But back east where we went, they still have 60, 80 riders at every race. Mm. They love it. Mm. So, so you're starting a series out here. Tell us about this because I, I want to get to one of these. I hope you guys come out. Uh, it's called The Big Three. And it's uh, produced by myself and TBG, Trites Promotional Groups. It's called the Big Three, and it's a two-stroke race, basically 98%. And how I got there was, and I'll try to make this short because a lot of people will just be bored. But in the early days before I went factory rider uh, in 72, all of us raced together. We had our parents and families, and it was fun racing. We just loved it. And they were all two-strokes back then. So I said, I want to take us back to when we had fun. So that's where I came up with the two-stroke. Then I started thinking, how do we get the expert guys? And for me, in my understanding, in life, it's always been novice, intermediate, expert, pro, whatever you want to call yourselves. To me, it's an expert. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. So when you had, we were fortunate enough, CMC would throw a $1,000 purse or something, Man, everybody showed up. Not only the pros, but all the novice and intermediates because they wanted to see the battles and yeah. the racing. Yep. So we had big turnouts for $1,000. So I said, all right, well, let's try cash. Let's throw $10,000 cash at each event, three events for 30000 Okay, we send that out and it shakes the world. Like we were giving away a million bucks or something, but it really woke people up. So I said, well, I'm putting 10000 out there. We got to do something for the intermediate guys, the novices. In the end, the expert guys have factory rides or they have local shops. They pretty much got everything coming at a discount. The guys that pay our bills are those novice, intermediates, and weekend warriors. If we didn't have those guys, there would be no Troy Lee. There would be no Bill Helmets. There would be nothing. Yeah. Yeah. The four-stroke, unfortunately, knocked out hundreds of thousands of our rider base. And it's been dwindling ever since. Again, don't get me wrong on the four-strokes. I'm just telling you the facts. And you talk to the factories that are manufacturing half of what they used to. Mm, All the companies are struggling a little bit. And... um, so the bottom line was, I said, my goal was to reach out and get $10,000 of um, contingency awards for the novice and intermediate only where it used to go to the pros. The pros are getting their cash. I want to take care of those guys. I want them to go home with something in their hand. Go, look what I won. Finally, I get some recognition from somebody. <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> he knows Donnie get gets something. to win something. Yeah, yeah finally, right. I can. I'm, I'm your base. So, <laughs> the two strokes uh, to me are uh, still golden. They're a lot less money. Obviously, we all know that, and, the, and keeping up, and a lot of people know how to keep up a t- two stroke. And uh, and I've seen this kind of movement coming a little bit. I heard you guys talking about it too, but. The people that had to leave, I mean, you can go buy a 2006 Yamaha 250. It's been the same for, what, 10 years? 
All yeah. they did is change graphics, like the KX500. It's, it's now that been the same 15 years in a row. 15 years on the KX500. So those bikes can be bought for three to five thousand dollars, and you're pretty competitive. Yeah, even Let's if go that, racing. Some of them yeah. are even cheaper than right. that. Right. So that was my thought. Is um, and I explain this to all. I have sponsors you won't even believe in Yamaha. Uh, Fly Racing, Brock at Dunlap said I. they thought I had pushed all the correct buttons and they wanted on board badly. And usually in prior years, five years prior, I quit promoting uh, races. It's just too much work and everybody thinks you're getting rich. Now, let me tell you what, it's ex expensive. The hours to do it is, is great. So there's no reward. So I thought, okay, you guys, so my guy and I got on the horn and we started calling. You got to remember, all these guys' budgets came from 2018. Here we are, a month ago, a month and a half, we decide, let's go put on three races and go get a bunch of sponsors, right? Well, the money's usually spent. And they came on board like you just wouldn't believe. Hmm. I only think three guys turned us down. And I raised $10,000 for those guys per race. So now we've got a $60,000 series with the pros. That's awesome. And That's split between the pro pros right. and the so amateur it, pros. It's all there. And, um, so you got three events. I see Cahuilla Creek two times and once at Glen Helen. Cahia, yep. September 21st. Cahia again, October 26th. Yes. And then Glen Helen, November 16th. Correct. So modern and two-stroke vintage. Uh, well, what I, yeah, what I did is I took everything from the beginning pre-74 to 2020 current. Okay. All two strokes. And in SoCal, I don't know how it is everywhere else, we always, we have a vintage clubs and that's where you go. 81 before. Yeah. And then, then you have your modern guys. They never really put them together. And I got to re remind you folks that this is not a vintage race. This is all two strokes that they were made. Yeah. We have classes for them. That'll be fun. Where can they go uh, sign up or register? Yes. Go to secure.trackside.preg.com slash forward TPG. Easier, go to my Facebook. It seems to be the best communication out there. Go to my page. Click on there. You'll find it. You'll find them on a lot of your friends' pages too. But if you don't find it, go there or you can email me, marty at martytripes.com. We'll take care of you. Oh. I can I, also get something. Uh, you can keep an eye out in Racerhead on Fridays on RacerX Online. We'll put something into the industry events uh, press release section as well. So we'll make sure you guys can get uh, this on that side as well at RacerX. If I could, I'd like to. My guys came through so hard. We worked hard and they worked with us. Can I mention my uh, sure, sponsors real quick? Absolutely. So at the top of the list, who's been with me forever, we have Fly Racing, Spec Bolt, 6D Helmets. Nolene J6, Spider Grips, Dunlap, Motion Pro, Asterix, Matrix Concepts, uh, SoCal Mako, CR Racing. Uh, the Mako and CR Racing, they're old, they're vintage. Guys that deal only in Makos and CZs. Charlie Richardson, if you guys ever want to get into a vintage bike, here's who you go see. Uh, Grant's rode one of uh, the SoCal Makos. Yeah, Gary. And, I think you'd be shocked. Well, he's, he told me too, but the 81 Mako. 
490. That was a really good it's bike for Tara. Incredible. You got to ride it. Do you know a guy named Dallas Nyblod? He goes I to do. a lot. Of, okay. I do. He, he let me ride his Mako uh, up at uh, Racetrex Interam in Boise. Uh, and I, I rode a, a twin shock Yamaha YZ250 and then this Mako. And I mean, it, I had a ball. Yeah. He does, his bikes are beautiful. He does an right. amazing job with them. The um, Mako turns like none under. Yeah. The it's handling. Super fun. The handling. The suspension yeah. is like. The tallest suspension you've yeah. ever seen is so much travel. But in the 81, Mako, I'd like to see a really good rider on a national track outdoors. Just to see, because it's that good. The machine is unbelievable. Okay, so uh, we have Maxima, ASV. We've got uh, Gary DeForest. I'm not prejudiced on sponsors. I get them everywhere. Moss, <laughs> it helps our guys out. That's what we're working for, those guys. He's a chiropractor. He did a lot of the chargers. Cool. He took care of Tommy Croft and Marty Smith and myself. W uh, Wheels is involved. 100% goggles of Beeville Forte. Harlan Meat Company. That's where everybody's going. Why a meat company? Well, you probably have ties. We have ties. We know the owner. And um, well, that's another story. <laughs> but uh, he always gives me the meat for my riders. I probably won't do it the first race because I want it to come off really well. So we set the tone for the next two. But in the, probably in the last two races, I'll bring out the big Barbie, as you would say it, and we'll burn meat, man. We'll just burn it up and everybody get in there. Okay, Sweet. Moto Nations, Bill Baroff, uh, Vortex Ignitions, Fastlane uh, Fasteners, Renthal, Unique Garage Door, another guy. Why Unique Garage Door? I love him because he's an American company. He's the only garage door maker west of the Mississippi. He's here on the West Coast, and he's a motorcrosser. Mm. So I, I might need to get his number. Yeah. I need he, new garage doors. They'll upgrade. They have though. the most quiet door ever. The, the dentist, uh, Steve Wilder, does. Well, I actually can't mention the name, but a lot of these guys, the stars. going to be like George Foreman. Doing all the ads for all these guys here pretty the soon. The Tripe's Grill? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he put something in his house because Gary, uh, um, he worked on Bob's teeth. And um, for the first week, he said he had to keep going back because he didn't know if the garage door was down. It's, it's they call it <laughs> quiet. Uh-huh. And it is quiet. So that's... Uh, Widler was at our David Bailey show, and he won a free set of wheels. Steve Widler. Oh, did he? Yeah. 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 Nice guy. You know what? People don't know it. In the early days, uh, vintage, like Weiner Lackey and them, guess who was porting their cylinders? Widler Dynamics. You can port a cylinder, you can port some teeth. That's what I always say. (laughs) It's a Dremel tool, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be a little finesse. uh, Steve Wilder, uh, Dentistry, Alpine Star, Works Connection, John Stone Works Racing, John... Paul has uh, been with me since the day when we started the Marty Tripes 100cc Works Revenge, and he's going really strong. He has a lot of hundreds and parts. You guys would know this guy, Jack's Barbecue Shack, Lake Elsinore, on the yep. lake. Yep, I've been there. We don't care whose money it is. Just get it to these guys, to these intermediates and novices. DC Plastics, Race Tech, Henson Clutches, Golfner, L.A. Sleeve, been around forever. Bassett Salons. salons. Uh, do you remember Bassett racing headers on speedboats and all the dragsters and all that? I remember the name. Bassett was it in headers. I remember Bassett as in furniture. 
Uh, yep, that's right. There was a Bassett. There Ward too. Bassett. Ward Bassett is the kid. Yep. Dad's name was it John. Was in or- it was in Orange, California. That's right. And made the most beautiful headers you've ever On seen. On Batavia. <laughs> What's his address? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, calm down, Donnie. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just peeping. What are you doing there, bud? Ward and I did some events on uh, child care. We raised a lot of money doing it when I previously was promoting. And the last event, we, we raised over five thousand dollars for that charity. So Ward's been with me the whole time, and um, he supports and distributes all his shampoos and stuff to the barbershop. So that's where he came. He's got a bunch of stuff for us. Anyway. That is all of our sponsors. Quite a few. Yes, it is. And uh, and this time, folks and riders, you got to know, this money just does not come at this time of the year. Yeah. They have been sold out. And it got to where they were just calling us because mm-hmm. they believe in this too. They know the numbers are down. And it sounds like I'm pitching. I guess I am a little bit. But we got to get back to affordable racing. If we're all going to survive this, we have to do this because it's dwindling yeah. quicker than they know it. Well, I was mentioned at the beginning of the show when the manufacturers was talking to me about bike prices, and he's like, I'm, I'm trying to pitch to our manufacturer to stay away from hydraulic clutch, to get away from like some of these things that they're wanting to put on because he's like, they all add up. The cost is going to come Literally, back. To if the, you itemize to, everything, you go, to the buyer. Yeah. yeah. He goes, if, well, what are your thoughts? And I said, dude, you, you can't keep raising the prices. No. You can't do it. we got to I mean, figure something out. Right now, that Yamaha 2006, I think, is the same today, right? That's what I, that's what I meant earlier. It's 15 years in a row. It's exactly so the same bike. the molds have been paid for yeah. 25,000 times or whatever. And the same with the KX500. The same as Suzuki with the DRZ 400. Oh they haven't changed the molds in like 30 years. Going. And they still sell a crap load of them. It's still going. So right now, America's in a really uh, good financial way. People are working and stuff. People, fathers, I would say, families that used to ride motocross, the husband and wife, now they got off The kids are coming up. What if you could take and say, all right, we want to go racing. We can't afford one bike at ten, yeah. $12,000, right? You have a shop. How about the guy comes up to you and you're able to sell him these Yamahas two for ten or $11,000. Hey, not only do we got a little joy going now, Chris can ride too, and it's a family deal. We get two bikes. It's also Let's the, it's build also the, the numbers run, back up. It's also the, the, the running cost. You know, you need bikes that, yeah, maybe, you know, I've even said there's got to be a better way that guys don't have to go and change their filters, air filters, you know, maybe every ride or every other ride. Make it more convenient for people. Like, you know, like in your car, it's convenient. And that's what people want these days too. Yes. And I think, you know, they came out the air forks. Like, that was just another thing. You got to check your tire pressure, check the air fork, you know, change your filter, check your oil, what's your hour meter. And I'm like... It, it takes some of the fun out of it because it's just so much in your mind and you wanted to go and get on your bike to clear your mind, yeah. you know? And so it's, simplicity, if you build a simpler bike, it should be simpler parts, meaning it shouldn't cost yes. as much and be easier for someone to work on. Even with owning a bike shop, I would like to see people be able to understand their own machines and work on them a little more. Mm-hmm. But people, once it went four-stroke, there's a lot of people who go, I don't even know what I'm looking at, so I'm right. out. Well, here, here's the thing. Um, if we could get prices down, get the base start going, I mean, 
Yamaha's there. KTM. <laughs> Good job, KTM. You have taken this world and blindfolds on all the Japs. You, you came out and you steadily did work. You took away the off-road market. You guys own it. Yeah. It's orange. You go trail riding, Baja. You're not going to see Honda. If you do, yeah. it's like it's like one. You know, like yeah. Eh. Then they quietly snuck in the motocross and they started building that. Then they get still Roger away, and everybody's laughing. They're not laughing no more. And it's got to tell you something that KTM is still putting technology and still making an awesome 250 motocross bike. Yeah, still, and a 120. Still, I think yeah. it's a 125 too. They make a 125, a 150. Now they have a, a TPI off-road model, so fuel-injected two-stroke right. off-road models. So, so they're continuing to put development into that. And my thought uh, they're to just that saying is, if the Japanese aren't, we will, which to me makes sense. You know, instead of fighting the current, just go wherever yeah. it's not. You know, find a niche. And and I'll tell you, so if Yamaha, let's say, doesn't want to have to keep up with all these building the bikes, making them newer, man, they would do themselves a favor by just chopping off a thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. Figure out how to do that. Because now if a guy's going, well, the KTM's a little bit better, but this is, I'm getting this thing for, you know, that's right. not this. I'm going this way, going blue. Well, then we all know the dependability of the two-stroke. Yep. Yeah. So it's got all its merits there. And um, now we're excited for this uh, series. We'll, we'll be but, there. You got yeah. my word. I'll make one of these yeah. for sure, at least. So The closing part was. I got a YZ125 ready to do work. Oh, man, I will be rooting for you. <laughs> I'll put a tutu on for you. Hey. You don't want to see that. No, actually, I do. <laughs> I'm going to hold do. you to it. <laughs> All right. All you right. should have driven a harder deal. <laughs> but through this uh, stuff, the Japanese really need to look at what's happening. What KT KTM sells every bike they make, I understand. And they sell it at top dollar, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a four-stroke or two-stroke. But it comes back to, let's just say... But if you bring into the car world, let's say KTM's a Mercedes, not everyone wants a Mercedes or could afford a Mercedes. Some people want a Toyota Corolla Correct. or a you know, Nissan Titan or something simple, Honda Accord. Mm -hmm. Keep it simple. Have the options. Yeah. Well, Have Ground Zero and the Mac Daddy, you yeah. know? You know, it's just, I don't know if it's true. The rumor is, and it, it, uh, uh, shame on them if they're really that close-minded, but... I don't think uh, Suzuki still make a two-stroke. No. Yeah, but I've well, I'm not a motocross version. Right. It's been said that Honda will never make another two-stroke. I say, boys, you better wake up because it's not going to be long before you have nothing. And Orange is going to own everything like they do right now. It's happening. Yeah. And the two-stroke, the biggest reason these people supported this, these sponsors here, Fly Racing, uh, Dunlap and Yama were talking. Said, you know, there's been movement and movement. We don't understand it. You pushed all the buttons, we think. In the words of Bob uh, Lowry, this could be the turning point in history, the rebirth of the two-stroke. If we can make this come off good and get five, 600 riders at each event, That'd be great. hey, somebody better start taking notice. Let's get to work here. Let's keep the four-stroke going. But have an alternative. Maybe that, have an alternative. Yeah. Give it to them. Let's think about family packages. And guess what? So you sell a little bit cheaper. They're going to buy parts for it sooner or later. Yeah. So now you still got all those parts to sell. 
We're and there. The, yeah, and the accessories and the add-ons and the boots and everything it, goes with it. It all goes with it. You, you, uh, at least in the 125 market, to me, you could sell that thing at, at a cost to where you're either breaking even or even losing a little bit of money and use it as a loss leader. Yeah. Because if somebody mm. buys this bike, they're going to get in, realize it's fun, they love it. And then they'll okay, what's next? I the want next that 250F. Yeah, yeah I'll sell right. this to the next kid and I'm moving up. That's right. But if you don't start providing a, a, an affordable, easy way to get involved in the sport, they're not going to. Yeah. yeah. There's too many things that kids want to do now, whether it's Minecraft or... Too many, di- yeah, distractions. You know, every other stick and ball sport, they're competing for kids' attention too. That's right. So... A little bit scary. Well, excited to see you're doing that. And like I said, we're going to support it. We'll be out there. Uh, look Great. At, look to RaceRex online here in the next couple of weeks. We'll have some posts about that uh, event, that series coming up. Or look on Marty's Facebook page. It's probably be the best ways to find it. Um, so do you still follow the sport pretty closely? So you watch all the races and stuff? Well, we play Texas Hold'em every Saturday night. So all day Saturday, what do we do? We watch the We're races, races. All right. and we bet on that. We bet on everything. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on it? What do, you, what do you think the sport's doing good? We've kind of talked about tracks you're not real happy with, but what's tr- good, what's bad? I mean, bad? like, yeah, Washougal and other tracks that are really good, but then you see some of them, and you just... Well, I, I think it's damn near sacrilege what they've done to Unadilla, adding in all these jumps and rhythm I sections. I would and, like and, to offer right now, you fly me back there. I'll drive the tractor. Let's take that thing back to where it should be. Freshen up all the downhill. Uh, what do you call it? Screw you hill or what was screw it? Screw you. Yeah. And, well, they took the corkscrew out, the one you're talking about, where yep. it was a tight right, tight left down the hill. And I hear that they did that because of TV. And that's why the tabletop there is there. But it's better racing when they're not in the air. Let's just take Supercross for a second. Again, I'm not bitching, folks. These are just facts. You take the time of an average Supercross, what is it, 34 seconds or 50 seconds? Yeah. Whatever that time is. Okay, say it, it's a 60-second lap time. You're 30 seconds in the air. Yeah. Where's the race one? On the ground. Yeah. 90%. Okay, and it makes for good racing, right? So why are we putting these guys in the air? And I'm just going to go over this right now. Why are we killing our riders that come up short from a mischief or a spin out a little bit and they still try to go for it? Yeah. You know, I think it can make it do a better job in Supercross. But we need to get back the natural tracks that made us develop and good to Supercross. Walk before, excuse me, walk before you run. And let's teach our guys and get them back. I think um, the gr- grooming of the tracks, you guys were saying, and we look at Europe, they might groom the start. Pretty much all the tracks don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's some horrible, the Dubai or wherever that is. That's terrible. Oh, well, that's horrible. Yeah. You know? But for the most part, there's really good tracks. And we need that. Yeah. yeah. We need that. Well, we've complained about some of this stuff before, but I don't know who you take that argument yeah. to to fix it. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, What do you geez. want people to, when they think of Marty Tripes or hear that name, what do you want them to remember? <laughs> it's always our closing question. It's always yeah. one that stumps everyone. I don't know. You read the letter from Rich Irested, and I wonder about that. Yeah, he, call, he calls you the Bay Ruth of motocross. 
Yeah. He just woke yeah, up. So, so to give you a, a abbreviated version of this, Rich Erstad, who has passed away, uh, wrote this letter to Marty from prison. Uh, he's in jail for something. We don't yes. know what. We don't know. We didn't know anything about that. But he says, I wrote this on my ass sitting in jail. But it's just kind of praising Marty as being like the Babe Ruth of motocross, you know, how he used to walk up mm-hmm. and just kind of glance out in the outfield and then just crack home runs after home runs. So yeah. uh, it was very complimentary to you and the way you rode, yeah. standing on the pegs and just so naturally talented uh, would make people just shake their heads, you know. And, and, and as I mentioned, it's like when you made your, dis- your mind up, you were going to go win. Whatever, when you found the right motivation, there wasn't a lot of people that could stop you. You have to have that, and you got to back it up. Yep. That's work. Um, but getting back to, um, by the way, I got one of those letters from Lachine. Poor Ronnie, when he was in jail. and Ronnie went to jail? <laughs> no, you didn't. No. Oh. <laughs> no. Did I think that out of the bag? <laughs> Ronnie, no. I love you. You know, we're joking here. But, uh, Ronnie's he, name usually comes up in most of the old stories <laughs> somewhere along the The dogger, line. he's a he's, uh, San Diego boy, but he wrote me a very nice letter, too saying things and um <laughs> so, so do you, do you like being remembered as inspirational i mean you know you talk about a game changer you were you were a sport changer you kind of helped american motocross i guess because of the super bowl first win and being so young might have sent the biggest message in america that hey, these are our heroes, but we can beat them. And to have them come back and say, I was there that night, you beat them, and you stood up the whole time, and that was after Robert. Robert would stand up all the time. I might have even stood up a little bit more. Um, that's inspirational, I guess. I guess I'd have to walk away with that. Is, um, I told basically, I didn't tell. But the results told America, guys, let's go. We can be the best. We're Americans. We can do this. I, I would say I'm guessing that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to give a shout-out to your brother real quick because he, the he actually, the chief, Mike Tripes, was my mechanic at KTM when that's GL right. and I were teammates. Oh, two. Maybe oh, one he was there as well doing think, in another capacity. Exactly. but. I still um, remember at our launch, you were the you were the doing the catering at the KTM. Oh, yeah. Ron right, even was the manager. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Slicer know, and Kurt Nickel. And you know how Ron even got started in motocross? <laughs> Let me guess. <laughs> Through you somehow. Oh, it was actually. We went to uh, seventy two to Canada, race uh, Interam or Transam, and they were there like Thursday in a motorhome, the Bonaceras, and uh, we met. Became close friends. We had nowhere to stay, so we stayed in Ohio in Youngstown or Sharon, Pennsylvania with them. That was our base, and uh, we became good friends. And when I said 78, I wanted to come back, and I wanted to win. I brought Ron out to actually live with me. He wanted to get out of there. Gave him a room in my house, and we trained. That's how we did it. That was Ron's start. Huh. And then he got into Yamaha for a lot of years, ran Kawasaki for a lot of years. I thought he might have ran Honda. I can't quite remember it. He was at Honda for a while. Mm. He's been around the industry forever. Forever. Yeah, he was and, Mickey's um, mechanic, Mickey Diamond, my, and, yep. and he's made his, he's made his he's rounds for sure. One of my closest yeah. friends, and Ron, if you're watching this, 
Even my fat ass today can beat you in racquetball. That <laughs> well, I remember really, you used to talk about that racquetball. That'll really all the tear him up. That's really going to bother him. Hey, yeah. I, I've played enough racquetball to know. Don't walk into the, the arena there and look at a guy and go, I got this overweight yeah. guy, because those overweight guys put that ball in the bottom corner every time. <laughs> and even when I was in the best shape, I was running from the back to the front. Oh. You and, they were, and they were just standing in the middle of the court, just sending me everywhere. Yeah. And I just was like, Oh, he oh. would kill me today. But um, you know what? And, uh, we had fun things in Supercross. And um, the one year we had a, a Supercross tournament in Pontiac, Michigan. And Marty Smith was really good. He played and a bunch of names and there was a bunch of locals. And um, oh, I upset them badly. I, I won that and that was fun. We That's used to really have fun good. That's besides. really good eye-hand coordination. I love it. Really you good. know what my record is for skeet? I know you don't because you never talked to me. <laughs> I ran, oh, you don't know each other. I didn't mean that bad. <laughs> uh, but like I said, I was really good at it. And um, I ran 524 straight. Jeez. Is that right? That's Jeez. correct. And I did 261 with the 410 gauge. That's a 12 gauge I'm talking about. The only reason I missed it, I was trying to get, uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to lose Grant. Round four We're going to lose Grant. I'm just going to finish it like this. Just stay there. It's going to be fine. I I was (laughs) talented with the shotgun. I loved it. So don't break into the tripe's house, just uh, FYI. That would be a mistake. That would be a mistake. Um, Well, anyway, I wanted to give a shout out to Mike Tripes because he was meant to be my mechanic, but it was his first job. So your uncle, Andrew, wrenched for me for the first few rounds of the year. We got a win at Anaheim 2. And they said, all right, we're on a good roll. We're going to pass it along to Chief for Phoenix. And that's when you had your bike That's issues. when my bike blew in half. Oh, no. Piston, they put in a different piston. Not his fault. And it cracked in the heat race. And I broke my bike in half. Cased his triple or anyway. He, you did what and I so did so he's the, the poor bastard. He literally, there's pictures of him running off the whole front end of my bike. And that's his welcome and to the, Supercross <laughs> race team. Well, <laughs> oh, you mean the front end broke off the oh, bike? snapped. Yeah, off the bike. The clamps. Wow. So he's running the front of my, you know, front wheel Forks, clamps, and bars off the track, and the back sitting in the back of a little mule. The back that back. was not a good ad for KTM. I just remember they were very, so, very you, emotional. Good dude, but it didn't go great for you us. You won something, and you had a, you know, those big fake checks. This is $5,000. Yeah. David, still in his garage. Oh, yeah? <laughs> He's a good dude. I always liked Mike. It was just, we just had a bad, bad timing. Yep. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what happens sometimes. So, uh, anyway. Um, Anything you want to say to the fans and, and uh, people who supported you over the years or people who didn't? Now's your chance. Uh, parting shots. Parting the shots. The microphone's yours. You know, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's, uh, you'll find in it's more uh, difficult to leave the sport. Yeah. It's uh, very personal and... Only guy who can understand that is like ourselves that have retired. And if you've been on top, um, it's even harder. Yeah. But I, to me, out of all of it, it's, I felt in 78 that I was the fastest rider on the planet. In fact, I know that in my heart. And that's not a bad thing in no. somebody's life. Well, you're not in the so, Hall of Fame for nothing. So, but motocross, I've never met better friends, have had lifetime friends. 
and I think this goes with everybody that loves the sport. It's, I think, the most best sport uh, somebody can get involved with yourself against yourself against competitors, the friendships that come along with it for a lifetime, uh, the community reaching out if you're in trouble, and um, the friends I made, Steve Wise, is one of my best friends. He's a minister of all things now. Mm-hmm. You know, he was there in uh, 72. Funny thing about that, in 78, he's living with me in my house. And he's chasing me around, the, and I'm helping him, and he's helping me. So, and here we are, friends today, and the stories like Rick, Ricky, or I should say Brock and Steve about the first Super Bowl. Okay, here's a good one. I'll close with this. A week or two or so after the Super Bowl, calls him. We go to uh, Indian Dunes. Wasn't a big fan. I never could do good there. Just one of those things. So we're in the pits, and um, a black guy comes into our pit. Big, big black guy, husky. He's in a suit. What the heck is this guy? This guy's out of place, right? <laughs> yeah, and um, <laughs> Mr. Stripes here? And everybody's looking at me like, I'm going, don't look at yeah. me. You know? Don't make eye contact. <laughs> so he comes back and he asks again. He says, I've been told this is Marty Trite's pits. So I, somebody go gets my dad. And my dad goes, hey, what's this all about? And he goes, can I talk to you, Mr. Tripes? He goes, yeah. So they go and talk and he comes back. He says, um, son, I think you should go with this man. I'm going, thanks, Dad. You just sold you sold me out. We go walking through the pits, comes up to this motorhome, does a couple taps, the door opens, and immediately I recognize it's Steve McQueen's wife. Oh yeah? Right. And I uh, there's nobody more American than Steve McQueen. Yeah. You know, I was a kid in the movies, and I'm going Great escape, my God. You know, you recognize guy, his wife right away, huh? Right away, I go, this can't be happening. She says, come in, come in, Marty, come in. Come in, and Steve, you know, they have that table, and you've got seats on each side. And he said, gets up, and he comes up. Come in here, Marty, come on. And he's hugging me, and goes, I was there at the Super Bowl, uh-huh. 72, and you kicked those Europeans' ass and this and that. I love you, and he's bawling, crying, and I'm bawling, crying. I'm a little kid, everyone. What just happened? Yeah. You know? So he told me that he was there, and um, he was proud. I mean, this is a movie star. I mean, everybody knows Steve McQueen. It's like the James Dean. So was, uh, and I always remember, I was proud to be an American that night. He was in tears. I'm almost in tears now thinking about it. Yeah. And um, so it's like, that was good. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That'll I got stick to meet you. him. And um, we talked for a while. And you know, it, it, to me, from what I saw on TV and then meeting him in person and getting the talk for 10, 15, 20 minutes, there was no difference. He was, he was as cool off screen as he was yeah. on screen. Is that and, right? Uh, he said, you know, my motor's coming up. 
nobody knows I'm here. I got to go racing. Oh, yeah. You know, he was under some other name. You know, Harvey Mushman. Whiskey, yeah. whiskey Dog Thrall or yeah, something, you yeah. know. Uh, but it was, um, that stuck out. And if I could affect that guy, and he was that proud of. So going back to that original question, well, your question was, is I, I guess I got to go with that. That would be it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you know, the motocross community is a family. We're a weird family, but um, it's like you said, you don't, we haven't really all communicated a right. lot. We live down the road, but we're all running our own circles. But um, I won't speak for Grant, but I feel like we all have sort of a brotherhood. We've kind of all been there and, and love the same sport. So um, it's true. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, we feel your happy, your joy and your sadness together with you. And we've had that with every guy we've had on the show. So awesome. we appreciate you coming on. And, and hey, guys, you're thanks just, for having me. Yeah, yeah. you're a damn legend. Thank you very much. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank yep. you. I hope your chair makes it through the next interview. <laughs> it will because I'm taking your chair when you get up. <laughs> uh, thank you, too. Fun. I'm sorry. Donnie. Donnie, that's Donnie, Donnie over there sits DJ on the side. Don. You don't see him, but the guy's uh, pretty knowledgeable. Hell, yeah. He's an encyclopedia <laughs> over here. Yep. So we keep him around. <laughs> Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks for watching. We're going to be right back to wrap up the show. That has been Marty Treps. Thank you. At Nihilo Concepts, we have a passion for innovation and for motocross. Our mission is to develop parts that will improve the durability, functionality, and the appearance of your motorcycle. We're proud to say that everything from Nihilo is made in the USA in our state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you race every weekend or you just ride for fun, Nihilo offers high-quality, innovative parts that you just won't find anywhere else. Nihilo offers custom engraved engine covers, one-piece titanium foot picks, brake tips, internal engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, carbon fiber components, and so much more. Check out our website, NihiloConcepts.com, and see for yourself why teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nihilo Concepts. NihiloConcepts.com For wp is more than a store. We're truck and Jeep experts. From wheel and tire upgrades to full custom builds, 4WP has you covered. Do your rig right. Shop online or find your store at 4WP.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Whiskey Throttle Show. Uh, finished up with Marty Tripes, and uh, what a cool story that guy's got. Just amazing piece of moto history. It's so fun to hear his, um, well, his take, his take on stuff. Yeah, Even like you mentioned, how he was able to just decide when he wanted to win, and if he decided, yeah, he was going to win. <laughs> and, and it was interesting, because, you know, like when you start hearing purse money, you know, and stuff like that, there was just, there wasn't a lot of money in it. So these guys were doing it just... Just well, for the passion, or, or, or for in his case, just because it was fun. He yeah. just kind of says, I just like to have a good time, and, and that was, we had fun at the races, you well, know. Well, at that point in time, the, there was some money in motocross, but it was in Europe. Yeah. And then the money seemed to find its way over here, probably pretty much in the 80s is when the guys started making good money and good purse money in that, so. 
And I wish we could share everything. He brought a big uh, box of memorabilia and photos and just some incredible stuff. Um, yeah, like the first programs from, from the first four Super Bowls of motocross. We yeah. could have no video on the show and only show the amount of photos that he brought. That's what it would oh, be like. It was incredible. And, and the, we can try to drop them into the show, but this, uh, the Evil Knievel cycle, uh, Snake River Canyon X2 cycle jump or whatever that was going on, there was a motocross race held in conjunction with that. He talked about going and racing that. He's got the original parking pass, his letter of acceptance. <laughs> uh, there's all these uh, numbers, hand pencil scratched on the envelope that I think was his purse money he was calculating up or maybe expenses. Just some really crazy historical stuff. A 1966 letter uh, going back and forth between Husqvarna in Sweden and someone over here bringing Edison, Edison Dye. Dye over for the first time. Bringing Torsten Holland over. Torsten Holland over. Yeah. And so discussing who was going to, you know, we'll pay for his flights, you pay for his, you know, lodging or whatever. It was, it, it's crazy. And he said he's kept a ton of this stuff. So I wish we could show it all. We'll show some of the stuff we can. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just great to have him on. Really appreciate him coming in. Um, let's jump into our four-wheel parts get at me Q&A. Four-wheel parts is your one-stop shop for all things off-road, trucks, Jeeps, UTVs, you name it. Get in there. They can uh, set you up. Method race wheels, they have them, uh, as well as just about everything else you need. Four, the number four, wheelparts.com. Uh, Donnie, what do we got today for questions? Uh, Greg wants to know about the rider schedules. Uh, a lot of the guys, you know, some guys go on vacation, Europe, doing this, that, and the other. Uh, he wants to know who sets the schedule for those guys, like when it's time to come back to start testing and, and practicing for the next season. That's team managers, right? I mean, you, you'll, you'll um, usually even prior to the season ending, they're going to be like, okay, well, we're going to do this event, this event in the off season. So, you know, they'll kind of set an, Every, at least a timeline of, hey, we need to start getting e out to the track these weeks. Everyone's agenda is a little bit different. Like, for example, let's just say Pro Circuit Kawasaki, um, if they, if Kawasaki coming out their 2020 250F is a lot different, you know that they're already planning now to get the ball rolling because everyone wants to work out the bugs if they are or figure out what the bike likes or doesn't like earlier rather than later. I think riders have different schedules in the sense that, you know, a lot of riders that are maybe American or California-based might go to Hawaii or somewhere, but other riders might, might go to France or back to Germany or Australia or wherever. So everyone has their own way of doing it. And I think between riders and teams, they might say, well, before you go, we need to get this base testing out of the way or whatever it may be. But <clears throat> some guys are nursing an injury. Some guys are trying to get healthy. Some guys are riding for a new team. So I think everyone's sort of got a slightly different schedule. But yeah, it, it is kind of unique not even just team to team. Sometimes the rider with the team can be individual to a, a teammate even. Yeah. What, what did you do, Gio? Like when you were like racing for Pro Circuit and you knew you were going to do West Coast or whatever and you had a place in Florida and you had a place here, did you like go, okay, school's back in on October 15th and I've got to be back? Well, I could only start riding for uh, Pro Circuit because uh, of my previous contract. I could only start riding November 1st. Um, I was coming off an injury as well. So when, when I was getting going, halfway through December, I was like, I'm not where I need to be. And I think Mitch knew that. And it was kind of great that Ivan was riding well. And they were like, eh, we're probably going to put you in the East Coast. Because at that time, I'm like, I wouldn't be ready for Anaheim 1. So that suited me. But the following year, I went into the off-season injury-free. We developed the 2006 Kawasaki. They went from the steel to the aluminum frame. Um, so I just kind of ended the nationals and went into testing and training and all that and just kept the ball rolling and then 
role reversal, I was adamant I was doing the West Coast that next year because of the situations that it led up. Was all of your super, I know this might be stupid, but all of your supercross training was done here in California? Yeah. Yeah. Even when I had my property in Florida, I rode out there, but not much, not during supercross. I mean, I did some off-season riding You're out there. here most of the winter, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys do that. I, I think there's just, you know, maybe Olden's guys or a few people that spend more time on the East Coast, <clears throat> but same thing. They, the teams know what he wants. I mean, they work with Husky and KTM, so that makes it easier. It's streamlined. Um, but when they're not testing, they'll be back there. So they, they'll often have like a two-week schedule. Or we're testing this week. So you come out for a week, test. They'll go back and continue training, riding, preparing. Then they might come out another week. Sometimes the teams will even send stuff there just to get different air, different, you know, humidity, whatever, just to try something in a different part of the country. Did both of you guys go back to, like, did you go to Arizona, Ping, and spend time with your dad? Or do, do you guys do that? In off-season? Yeah. Are you just kind of guys were here? And I'm you're staying the hell out of Arizona in <laughs> September. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Dad. Uh, no, I, I would go. I would just stay home. Like you know, I, I didn't. For me, travel was the hardest part of racing. I hated it. Hated getting on planes. Yeah. Hated living in a hotel. I'm a homebody. I like to be home. So when I had that time off, I was doing. I was staying home. That's where I'm at. I used to be like, let's go, yeah, let's go there. No. Let's go to the living room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go, go to, to the, the backyard. Couch. Go to the man Let's cave. go to the backyard. Yeah. All right. Uh, Alan wants to know what happens to the um, well, previous year's factory bikes um, for the next year. After the season's over, what happens to them? I think for most teams, they get put back to stock. Um, Stock-ish, yeah. Stock-ish. You know, maybe the aftermarket bolt-on stuff that they could leave, but... Even a lot of those parts can be developed especially for the team that they don't want sold. Um, and then they will either go back to, like for the factories, they may go back to the manufacturer and they'll be sold to dealers um, at a obviously discounted rate as used bikes. And then at least their dealers can turn around and make a little bit of money on those. And the race teams, uh, sometimes in their contract, they're allowed to keep the bikes and they'll sell them. I know when I was at TLD, that's what we did. We'd put everything back to stock, put all the stuff back on it, and we'd sell them. And that was part of our agreement. We got to keep whatever money we made from selling them. So it depends on the agreement with the team. But I think those manufacturers just give them to send them out to dealers once they're put back to stock. Well, you know, even just if you look at, say, the factory teams, whether it's Cowie, Yamaha, Honda, whoever, a lot of times <clears throat> even things on the bike like KYB or Shawa, things like that, don't actually belong to them. It's some sort of a lease or an agreement that theoretically you can use that, but at the end of the season... That comes back to us. So there's certain stuff that doesn't even really belong to the team itself. And then different teams handle it differently. I think like Ping alluded to, but uh, I was just talking to the pro circuit guys, kind of how it works for them. So, you know, they deal with Shawa, but they buy their suspension. So it's theirs. They can sell, um, you know, do their own internals and sell customer spec kits, whatever they want to do. But with the race team, whatever their race bikes had this year, That'll now get put on their practice bikes for next year, and they'll keep some stuff for testing and just fall back and whatever. Um, so it does a step down so that next year they'll have fresh race stuff. This year's race stuff will be on their practice bikes and, so, and some of the test stuff just to fall back on. And then this year's practice bike stuff will now get taken off those bikes. And, you, well, usually they'll stay on those bikes, and those bikes will just get sold. So you can get some bikes, like maybe a pro circuit bike, where... 
It does have some cool bells and whistles. I know sometimes people get confused and they go, I bought a full factory bike. And I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> I promise you, you didn't. <laughs> and they're like, no, I did. Check it out. I'm like, you got a really nice graphic kit. But they come with a lot of little bells and whistles. But anything that's unique or that they've developed or that's confidential, which is usually motor parts is usually the, the, the number one thing, that's going to get taken out. And that yeah. either gets destroyed or goes back to Honda, Yamaha, or somewhere where they keep that very secret. But I know like, a lot of places, they'll just melt it. They've, yeah. got, they've got the measurements, they've got everything, and they'd rather just melt it. And I used to say, wow, that's such a waste. Then as you get older, you're like, oh, I get it. They don't want that to potentially get in someone's hands that shouldn't have it. Yeah, I remember <laughs> seeing the video of uh, when Ricky rode for Honda, and they made Chad Watts pull everything off, all the exhaust pipes, clamps, anything off his bike that he had in Florida. And they put it into a pit, and he just took his bulldozer and was flattening it all out. I'm like, oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what's different in Europe, too? Like, guys over there will find legit works bikes. I don't know why. It's, it's not the same level of well, secrecy over there. Well, but it's because a lot of those works bikes weren't HRC directly, or you had uh, Rinaldi Yamaha, and he was hand-making, you know, casings and, I mean, actual making engine parts and things like that. You had Jan de Groot doing it for Cowie, you know, in... Um, in England, you had a lot of guys, you know, especially in the 500 days, that made the aluminum swing arms and gas tanks. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of engineering going on, but a lot of them were private groups, almost a little bit like Formula One used to be in the day. It was Williams was Williams and McLaren, you know, was, these were just people, enthusiasts that had race teams that worked with factories. Mm. So there was that, whereas when HRC was involved, it went from them to the bike, back to them. There was no, it was no in-between, no gray area. Um, but I think what you're saying is when you're saying works bikes, they're not genuine factory bikes. These you are people that parts. made really cool freaking factory style parts for race teams. I, I just, when I was at the Farley Castle event, yeah. Dave King had a Honda, two, I think it was a 250, it might have been a 500. But it was, I mean, if it wasn't a works bike, the swing oh, arm yeah, was on a hand weld. Yeah. It was like the exhaust, you could just tell everything was... Yep. From a works bike. Anyway, I don't know where they... I'm like, you'd never be able to buy that over here. So a lot of those parts... That, like, I know a couple of manufacturers, they don't start from a stock bike. They pull all the parts and they build bikes, right? So yeah. all that stuff would probably be crushed then, you'd assume. Stuff that... All the work stuff? No, no. Like here, some of the manufacturers that are building the bikes, when they take it all apart, because they go through frames every few races, right? Three races yeah. or something. They're probably crushing all that stuff. <sighs> Well, if they can put it back to stock, because it's like GL said, they'll take a stock bike, the motor gets pulled out, and it'll start, you know, getting worked on by the motor guy. The stock suspension comes off, the work stuff goes on, clamps and all that stuff. So the stock stuff just goes in a box. And really all they have is the frame, and they build outward from that. So at the end of the year, the work stuff comes off, you just grab all that shit out of the box, the suspension, all that stuff, and it goes back on to make a stock bike. Now, with a stretched out frame and everything. But now what was funny was together. when I started with KTM and the GPs, they didn't start with stock bikes. They were literally just came in boxes and pallets and crates. I, KTM and there was still? Like, like 15 frames, but there would be like a almost a dozen different types. Like even if something was a mil shorter, a mil longer, like they would change the geometry and then there would be all these suspension kits and then be all these clamps. And you they would kind of almost piece everything together and you'd go through frame testing one day and then fork testing the next day uh, and clamps. And what did you say you had to test? Like 20 frames or something? I tested a lot and I remember I was probably young and, and not 
in tune to feel the little differences. So when there were little differences and they came in, they're like, what do you think? It was like, um, it's good. <laughs> Just, let's I go like with it. that. No, hey, like who it. do you think it was worse those days to test frames? Was it you or the mechanic? <laughs> oh, the mechanic. <laughs> they were sometimes in Europe. It was cold. I remember sitting in a rental car with the engine running and the blasting the heat had my hands in there and I'm looking outside and just watching the mechanics and it's raining and windy so they couldn't even have the awning out and they're literally working on a bike uh, I'm trying to think what they were standing under but I was like oh man that just looks miserable <laughs> this poor bastard <laughs> you want a hot chocolate or anything <laughs> I feel guilty watching and not you're doing making anything. way less than me and actually at that point in time it wasn't probably, not. <laughs> probably even Steven or yeah yeah, that's all I got. That's all we got? Yeah. All right, that's our four-wheel parts. Get at me Q&A. You can send questions for GL and I, and we will answer them. Uh, and also send questions for our guest if you can get them in early enough. But that's got to come through our Twitter account, which we haven't mentioned in a while. You want to give that a plug? Yeah, it's at W underscore throttle. No, what is it? I haven't used it in a while, so I don't know. <laughs> Let me get back to you on that one. W underscore throttle w underscore show, right? <laughs> is that right? Pretty darn close. Uh, he'll clear that up. Ping um, is still banned from Twitter. Or no, 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 no back on. You're back on. Oh, oh yeah. look at, at that. David Pingree 101. Feel free to follow. Oh, look at that. Much more subdued version of myself at on Twitter. W underscore throttle underscore show. Yeah. There we go. And that's not banned. So that's you can look at, follow that as well. No, because I right. run it, so yeah. Won't, yeah. we won't be banned. Yeah. Uh, hey, I want to give a quick shout out to our uh, Whiskey Throttle merchandise site. If you guys want to get a cool hat like this or T-shirts, we've got ladies' tank tops, sweatshirts. As we're getting close to fall here. Uh, get over there, whiskeythrottlemerch.com. You can pick up uh, some rad stuff for you. Uh, our Decal Works last call. Decal Works bringing you graphics, plastic, seat covers, garage mats, uh, stickers and letters for the back of your helmet or chest protector or helmet. Uh, they got a lot of stuff. Check them out, decalworks.com. They are the sponsor of the Factory Red Bull KTM team. They're also giving away five free tickets to our next live show, which is going to be next Friday, September 13th, down at TLD Laguna with surfing legend Kalani Rob, So that's going to be a lot of fun, a little bit different show. I'm sure we'll get some shit from some real hardcore moto fans who are like, bro, that's not moto. Everybody goes to the beach. I don't know what they're going to complain about. There's a lot of parallels between surfing and moto. Our industries share a lot of uh, familiarities and similarities. Kalani is a moto fan. He follows it very closely. He does surfer cross with us almost every year. So just calm down. Um, <laughs> All right, so in this installment of Last Call, we got Steve Wise on the phone. He grew up um, riding and racing with Marty. He's got a lot of, they're still buddies to this day, so he's got a lot of insight into uh, what he's all about. So let's check this out. Hello? Steve Wise, David Tingree with the Whiskey Throttle Show. How are you? Hello, David. I'm doing well. Hey, we appreciate you taking a minute to uh, to join us here. As I, as I mentioned to you, we had... Your buddy Marty Trites on the show, and um, he was he was a lot of fun. You can really tell that he's got a great personality and sense of humor, and uh, which I I appreciate yeah. and admire. Um, and and I, I wish I was around back in the day to see some of the pranks he pulled. He shared a couple little stories, but man, I, I imagine the ones he didn't tell or couldn't tell go on forever. Well, he was a real character, and of course with. Uh, Bob Hanna and, and Marty going round and round and doing funny things to each other. It was, it was hilarious, but yet it was, uh, you know, serious as well. And uh, being Marty's teammate back in 1978, the beginning of him coming back on Team Honda was, was a lot of fun and a lot of good times. 
Yeah, he shared a little bit about um, a couple of those seasons. That was one season he said he really got serious and he wanted that title badly. And um, it kind of got taken away by some weird DNFs, but um, it seemed like he was able to just at will kind of drop the hammer and beat everybody. You know, and we all knew that. It, it, even Bob Hanna knew that, <laughs> which was which was funny. That's why Bob would come over to the pits with a big old sandwich or all kind of food or stuff like that and try to, uh, <laughs> you know, pull shenanigans on Marty. But, uh, you know, we all knew that, and uh, that was, you know, Marty's portfolio, so to speak. And uh, if Marty wanted to win, it, it was really unique. He could pull it off. But, uh, you know, those times were here and there, so... Uh, but it was it was great uh, being a teammate of his. There was a, there was actually a letter that Marty had from uh, Rich Earstedt, um that was written to him while Rich was in jail. I guess he did a four month stint in jail. I don't even know why, but um, he showed us this letter. And in the letter, Rich writes about how Marty was like the Babe Ruth of motocross. You know, Babe Ruth used to go up just casually, put out a cigarette, look out in the you know, third baseline and then just knock them out of the park. And then, you know, the hardest part of it was jogging around the bases. And well, he said, Marty I, made it look so easy uh, and was so incredibly talented. He, he, he was just, Rich was blown away. And you could tell that letter meant a lot to Marty. Well, I witnessed that firsthand, David, uh, <clears throat> because Terry Mulligan, who was the Honda team manager uh, in the 78, uh, you know, 77, 78, and even before that. But he was that team manager. At the end of 78, uh, Tribes and I were kind of becoming friends. Warren Reed and I were great friends, and Tribes and I were kind of becoming friends. And, and uh, Terry Mulligan said, I want you to, he said, Steve, I want you to move to Southern California and live with Marty, of course, me being from Texas. And he said, I want you to help Marty train, because that was at the end of 78, and Marty had, you know, had a few uh, challenging things and should, could have beat Hannah for the, Championship and Supercross, but it didn't work out. But uh, so I moved to California, and uh, I rented a room for Marty. And I'd get up about seven thirty, eight o'clock, and I'd get up and put all my running shoes on and everything, and I'd go in and kick Marty's bed, and he would uh, <clears throat> give me the one finger peace sign, and, uh, and I'd go out and run five miles. I'd come back in, he'd still be in bed, and then we'd go out practicing that afternoon. He would just blow me away. I'm going, what is going on here? You know, but it took me a while to kind of catch up to him. I mean, living with Marty was one of the greatest things in my career because I would watch him ride and, and um, I kind of altered my riding style toward his by just watching him ride and then of course I went on to win the you know, Supercross and National Events and um, so now I have to credit a lot of that to watching Tribes in 78. He really, really helped me. But it was amazing because you know, he didn't train that hard. Yeah, and what, what was he like as a guy? I mean, kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what, what he was like off the track. I, 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 he said Bob Hanna, who, who really didn't like anybody, actually, and I thought that was interesting. And if I remember right, there's a story. Didn't Bob, like, put a big sub sandwich on his front fender on the start line? With him? Yeah, something like that. And, or, or would put, uh, you know, a piece of wood to the spokes. And, I mean, just, just funny stuff. And Bob yeah. was a cut-up, too. I mean, Bob was... You know, Bob, yeah, nobody really, you know, Bob wasn't really well-liked by a lot of people, but but, uh, but a few people. And uh, But, yeah, Marty and Bob did kind of joke with each other, get along, um, even though they were, you know, major competitors. But I'll tell you truthfully, Marty Tribes could get along with anybody. Marty Tribes is just a good-hearted person. And, 
you know, he gets along with almost anybody and everybody. So uh, to be around Marty off the track was just a lot of fun. We had a great times, great times, and you know, played golf and just started all kind of stuff, water skiing. We had a blast, and uh, of course, I lived with Tripe, so every morning he's cooking chorizo and eggs, and you know, and so it was a lot of cooking going on around his house, and and we we had a great time when when I was there. He was a good chef even back then, huh? Marty was a good cook even back then. He sure was, yeah. He he would do all the cooking all the time if, if we didn't go out, yeah. <clears throat> do you have, um, is there one story, one little anecdote you can tell us, maybe something funny or something that sticks out to you that you guys did together? He told us a story about leaving Lake Whitney one year and throwing some black cats at a, a Texas State trooper and getting in <laughs> trouble, but uh, is there another story well, you can tell us? Well, there's only about 50 that come to my mind. Um, you know, one on the track and the one off the track, I'll, I'll share quickly. But we were, we were somewhere back east, and we are in a, in a rental car. Marty and I were in a rental car. And, and we're going down the freeway, and I'm kind of do- dozing off. <laughs> and Marty, I'm dozing off, and he, ju- he gets out. He wheezes out from under the, the steering wheel real quietly and jumps in the back seat and, and yells at me. <laughs> and no, nobody's in the drive, you know, nobody's driving the car. And I, I wake up and, oh, my God. I mean, was, we didn't come close to, to crashing, but he got in the back seat and he was, like, holding the wheel from the back seat. And then he let go. And then he yells at me and I'm asleep. And I wake up and nobody's in the, <laughs> driving the car. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that was one I will never forget. But on the track, I'll, I'll tell you what, this is one of the events I'll, ne- I'll never, ever forget. I won the New Orleans Superdome on uh, July, uh, June 2nd, my birthday. I won it uh, June 2nd, 1979. On my birthday, I won the Superdome. Well, you know, and Marty, I think, got like third or fourth or, or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, so then about three weeks later was the Michigan Redbud National. Well, it was July 4th. The July 4th weekend was the... Red Bud National, so a month later, and and I was riding good. I felt pretty good, you know, and and of course Bob Hanna and Marty were kind of going at it, but Marty kind of dropped back a little bit, and so Marty told me that day in Michigan, he was, I'm going to win today. I'm going to win. I said, Oh, really? Okay. And I beat Marty some, you know, here and there, and you know, we were kind of that day in Michigan. He told me he was going to win. Now he beat Bob Hanna by 20 seconds. I got third place, and he beat me by 40 seconds. And I got third that day. And I, and I Marty won both motos, and, I mean, he was gone. I think he lapped him to fifth place. And, that was uh, his last national win, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. And I, I just, I look back at that, and I go, and he told me that morning, I'm going to win today. And, uh, you know, I'm never, I will never forget that, as well as, of course, I will never forget first seeing Marty Tribes in the Super Bowl of motocross, the very first one where my dad and I were out there on a vacation by accident. I saw the sign on the freeway saying first ever Super Bowl of motocross and my dad and I had our pittons on the, in the pulling in the back behind his car. And so he went to that race and watched that race, which is a wonderful time. I've got a bunch of great memories of what he tried. So I'm in a bunch. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you taking uh, just a few minutes to chat with us. I just, it's always fun to get someone else's perspective to- kind of grew up with him in that era and got to see him in his prime. And I'm still blown away that he could just do that, just say, hey, you know what, I'm winning today. Because he hadn't 
he hadn't really done great that last year in 79. He admitted that was, he was just kind of out of it. But when he turned it on, that was it. No, I mean, he really didn't. I mean, the Supercross series, he wasn't really, you know, I'd actually moved out of the South. I'd moved back to Texas by that time. So we weren't as close as we were, you know, toward the end of 78 and then through the beginning of 79. But then, and no, but he wasn't, I think he wasn't training nearly as hard and he kind of was getting burnt out a little bit. But that day in Michigan, I'll never forget. I will never forget that day. He he smoked us. And uh, and Marty Tribes had a riding ability and a unique riding ability. And, of course, I got to see it firsthand by riding with him every day when I lived with him in his house. Not only when we'd ride motocross tracks, but just trail riding and riding around, you know, just stupid stuff. I mean, he would do things that, that nobody could do. And there was a big yeah. rock at, at his riding area. And you, you would go up this rock, and it's real high, probably 30 feet high. You could only go up it real in a real narrow, like a three-foot area. You could go up to the top. And it was flat on the top, but every, it was straight down, everywhere around the rock except that one little area. Marty would ride up that rock and just turn around on the pegs, not even, you know, get off the peg, you know, not, not touching the ground. It's hurt, hurt, like a trials rider, and then go back down. I rode at that rock, got off my bike, wheeled it around, you know, pulled it, turned the wheel, <laughs> sit off the bike, and then rode down the rock. I mean, I, I tell you, I mean, I saw Marty do some things that were flat amazing, you know, out outside of a motocross track, you know, that was just phenomenal on a motorcycle. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I should appreciate your time, Steve, and we're looking forward to having you on. You and I chatted a little bit about some, uh, some times we could potentially get you on here later this year or early next great. year. So. Really looking forward to that, and, and thanks again for taking some time to chat with us. Well, I have a show every night on, on Facebook, MotoChurch.com, so if anybody would like to connect with me on Facebook every Tuesday night, I'd, it'd be great. But I would love to see you guys as well and come out there and, and um, be interviewed. And we really appreciate you guys remembering us old guys because, um, you know, it's just really neat to see where the sports come from and now where it's going. So thank you very much, David. Yeah, amen. Well, we, we, we appreciate, you know, we, we recognize that we, we stand on the shoulders of those that went before us. and You guys paved the way, so we're trying to just tip our caps to you guys. And uh, and honestly, fans of the sport just can't get enough hope, man. We love the story. So looking forward to having you <laughs> Thank on. you. Thank you. you Thanks too, so buddy. much, Steve. All Have right. a good night. You too. Bye-bye. All right, we're back. That was our last call. Uh, we appreciate uh, the time of our folks there. Big thanks to Marty Tripes for coming in today, and that's our show. Awesome. So, um Thank you guys for watching. Uh, I want to mention our sponsors one more time, PowerDot. Go to PowerDot.com, type in Whiskey Throttle at checkout, you get 20% off. Big thanks to those guys. Big thank you to Yamaha. Uh, just an awesome company. Set the standards for uh, durability, reliability, performance. Uh, so we're excited to have them part of the show. Method Race Wheels, Troy Lee Designs. Get over and check out all the new 2020 gear. Decal Works. Follow us on Instagram if you want those five free tickets. At Whiskey Throttle Show on Instagram. We're going to be giving those away uh, here next week leading up to the next live show. Uh, Dunlop, four-wheel parts, Adidas, Pro Circuit. Big thank you to Pro Circuit and congratulations on their new uh, most recent two championships, one with Adam Ciancerillo in the 250 Motocross Championship as well as Eli Tomac who runs their exhaust on the 450 team. Uh, Nihilo Concepts, also giving you 20% off. Get over there and check out their line of products. Amazing stuff. 20% off using the code Whiskey Throttle. Fire Department Coffee, been sipping on my light roast here all day. We appreciate their support. And uh, not only do they give you 20% off all online orders at uh, firedeptcoffee.com, 
they give 10% of their net proceeds to injured firemen. So it's a, it's a very good cause as well. Specialized bike, bicycles, thank you to them. Racer X, Langston Motorsports, that's our show. For GL and Donnie, I'm David Pingree saying thank you for watching the Whiskey Throttle Show. We'll see you next week.